Before we get into today's stories, today's episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Head to nordvpn.com slash mrcreeps for 66% off their two-year plan plus one month for free. And HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CreepsCast12 and use code CreepsCast12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Hi everyone, we're back with another terrifying episode for you. This week's stories will make you think twice about sleeping without a nightlight. I hope you're brave enough to make it through this entire episode. Let us begin as we journey further into Mr. Creep's mind. I found a site on the dark web that destroyed my life. Written by Kyle Harrison My name is Harry, and I'm dying. Less than a few weeks ago, I was in my car sitting on a ledge, engine revved, looking toward the open lake. I can hear geese calling out and look toward the clouds to see if they are breaking through to land. I clutch the steering wheel, realizing that I will never have the same level of freedom. In my head, I can see how easy it would be for the car to simply careen off the cliffside, toppling end over end into the dark blue waters below. All it would take is a simple push of a pedal. But I can't. I don't have it in me to do this. When the doctors gave me the bad news, it felt like my whole world was spinning. I had my whole life ahead of me. I wanted to still get married, have children, go places. Now, I was presented with a terminal disease. A slap in the face from the universe, if you will. My friends didn't want to accept it, of course. But the doctors eventually convinced them that the best thing to do would be to celebrate my life while I can. Why then, you may ask, was I there considering ending it all? The answer is my story. During their search for answers, one of my friends showed me access to the dark web, a place then steeped in mystery, where he claimed that he could find access to a plethora of medical treatments that weren't endorsed by any doctors. Miracles that supposedly could cure any illness that I had. I tried a few. I really wanted to beat this thing. Using the dark web to buy illicit drugs was easy. And it was also addictive. For a solid two months, I figured it was better to be doped up than to deal with the pain of knowing my life was going to end. It never fully worked though. And I would always crash hard. So that led me to more seedy corners of the dark web, where I found a site that I thought could fix 
all my problems. It was called itsyourfuneral.org and they made a business in making sure that people got exactly what they wanted for their death. Your life is full of choices that you get to make. Why should death be any different? The user named Max told me during a sales pitch. Initially, I was reluctant. I'm not sure that I'm ready to die. I typed back. He responded, No one is ever ready. And that's the beauty of the service that we offer. You can take matters into your own hands, get your affairs in order, and meet your maker on your own terms. You make it sound good, but it isn't like there are any customer testimonials. I told him, What we do is an investment in your future. We helped you set up a trust fund for a family member or a close friend before you go. To make certain everything you have to leave behind is well taken care of, Max said. How does it even work? I asked. We have a variety of packages that allow people to decide what they are comfortable with. It ranges from mild sedatives where the customer can simply fall asleep and never wake up, to extreme violence. If they want to go out in a blaze of glory, that's what we give to them, Max responded. This sounds like some killer's twisted fantasy, I admitted. It might, but rest assured all of our customers have already considered taking their life at some point or another. We are all scared of death. It's only human to be. So, why not help each other with this necessity? We are doing a kindness by allowing people to come to terms with their own mortality. He typed back. Do you only help people that aren't going to make it? Like me, sick I mean. I asked him. The majority of our clients are battling with a variety of illnesses, but we offer the service to whoever can provide a proper documentation that shows that they understand the full extent of our program. Legally speaking, we aren't liable for the customer purchase. Max responded. I typed back. Let's say that I was interested. How much would this cost? First, you would need to fill out this questionnaire. Be as truthful as you can in these statements that you make. We can discuss fees after that, he said, and a soft ping on my computer told me that he had already sent it over to me via email. I scrolled through the terms and conditions, casually glancing at the different clauses. It all looked very legitimate. I worked up the merger and told him, Okay, let me fill this out. It only took 15 minutes. Given how long I debated on that cliff about ending it all, the experience seemed very smooth. Max reviewed my information, 
and quoted me a modest fee for the service. I knew if I was going to go through with this, I couldn't hesitate. So, I booked an appointment with this strange service. Excellent. We have confirmed your payment. You will receive an email in a few days for an address where we will begin to work on creating your perfect death experience, Max told me through the chat. Over the next few days, he sent me more messages detailing how everything would go down. Now first, be assured if you ever feel the need to back out of this arrangement at any time before we proceed. There is only a small handling fee for services. We understand that this is completely your choice, and we want you comfortable and satisfied with your decision, he told me via chat. The location is private and secure. You will be well accommodated. Some of our guests choose to order a last meal before they enter their designated room. We have a fully staffed kitchen, ready to serve any entree requested, he added. He showed me pictures of the facility. It was well lit. I saw friendly staff, and even a few pictures of people who seemed genuinely happy to be there. Some part of me said that this couldn't be a facade. You will sign in at the main desk when you are ready to be taken to your prepared room. Once there, you will be given three hours to prepare any letters or emails that you want sent to family, friends, and so on. Max typed. Once the time limit has been reached, one of our trained professionals will enter the room and perform the service for you that you have customized and requested. He made it sound like any other business transaction. I had specified that I wanted to have the sedation, to be happy, doped up and just fall asleep without a care in the world. The day came before I knew I was truly ready. I drove and ran across an entire county to find this place, and it was just as beautiful as Max had described. Pristine white concrete walls, massive side windows, letting in tons of sunlight. It felt very warm and inviting, and that didn't change when I got inside either. The receptionist was well-informed, polite. I chose a simple soup as my last meal. It reminded me of my mother. When I finished eating, I tipped the waiter and then went up to the desk, signed my name and announced, I'm ready now. Of course, sir. Someone will come get you shortly. The receptionist told me, a minute or later, a male nurse walked up and guided me down a brightly lit hallway to a room marked with a six on it. Make yourself comfortable, they said as they passed me a key, and then went back to the lobby. I opened the door to a pitch black room. No windows, no lights at first. I reached for the wall as I heard breathing and realized that someone else was in there with me. 
It made my neck hair stand on its end. I found the switch and I flipped it on, just as the door behind me slammed shut. I heard this loud clanging noise, like a lock sealing me in. And then I saw a stranger on the other side of the room, dressed completely in a Grim Reaper costume, scythe and all. The only difference was the face. Instead of a human skull, this man wore a mask that resembled a deer's head, covered in cancerous bone spurs. What? What is this? This isn't what I ordered at all. I said frantically as I tried to unlock the door. It didn't budge. His voice sounded like a storm cloud, surrounding me on all sides. Death is never a choice. It is cruel, it is cold, and it is always inconvenient. It'll take everything from you in a heartbeat and be unconcerned with your status in life. It is absolute, and it will never ever be what you want it to be. He moved faster than lightning, the weapon slamming into my shoulder with the impact of a car crash. I could feel metal piercing my very bone as I screamed and instinct took over. I poked my fingers into the eye sockets of the bizarre mask, the man stumbling back in surprise as his weapon was still lodged in my shoulder. And then I pulled the scythe out and brandished it toward my attacker. I couldn't hesitate. I ran toward him and I slashed it across his throat. The attacker started to choke on his own blood and struggled to breathe. He crawled backward toward the wall and fumbled for a hidden switch. The entire room began to flash a bright red as I felt a ringing in my ears. I suddenly couldn't move or even react to what was happening as staff members rushed in to save their coworker. Another one of them tackled me to the ground, sedating me without hesitation. I remember hearing frantic screams, confusion, and shouting as I fell into unconsciousness. When I woke up, I was strapped to a chair and another shadowy figure standing before me. I must admit, this is not the outcome we expected, Harry, the man said. I was right all along. This is just a sick and twisted business, I snapped back. Maybe so, but you signed an agreement, one that you violated by killing Max, he replied. I felt a twist in my stomach. This was blackmail. I would spend what little remaining time I had in my life likely rotting in a cell. So, what happens now? I asked, certain that this man would finish what Max couldn't. It would be pointless to make you suffer more than you already have. You are living off borrowed time. So, that leaves only one option. He paused and passed me a keycard for what looked like an office. 
how would you like to come work for us instead? I knew that it would be pointless to refuse. They had me hook, line, and sinker. So now, where am I? I'm watching and holding the remote control as a different card tumbles over into the same leg. Crashing and burning as my latest client tastes that sweet release of death. Someone else that wasn't ready for death. This isn't what they wanted, but it was never their choice. I understand that now. Oppenheimer quoted it best. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Support for Creepscast is brought to you by NordVPN. Nowadays, so much of our lives are spent on the internet. Whether it's our social media, banking, health, travel, work, or really anything else you can think of, it all happens online through our phone or our computer. With that much personal information out there, you have to make sure you stay protected from potential online threats that could get a hold of your data and put you in a compromised position. With NordVPN, they stop exactly that. NordVPN securely encrypts your information to help ensure that your online identity stays protected. Personally, I've been using NordVPN for a while now, and I've found it to be an absolute essential in making sure that all my work stays safe and secured. If you're interested, head to nordvpn.com slash mrcreeps for 66% off their two-year plan plus one month for free. That's a little less than $4 per month. And there's also a 30-day money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash mrcreeps for 66% off their two-year plan plus one month for free. Thanks again to NordVPN for sponsoring today's episode. My neighborhood is being stalked by a man in a bunny costume. Written by Girl from the Crypt. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. As a kid, I actually used to be afraid of the people we lived door to door with. I got married at a young age to a very kind man from a good background. Our first child, Philippa, was born just one year later. My husband, Jean, is well off, so we were able to move into a beautiful large house in the suburbs. We've lived here for a pretty long time now. Philippa is seven years old these days, and her younger brother, Ethan, is five. While I can't say that I'm particularly fond of all of my neighbors, I know this one lady who kept calling me a gold digger behind my back at a garden party that we had hosted. The majority of them are good people, a bit uppity but ultimately nice. Most importantly though, they're all very well behaved, making our home a safe place for Jean, myself, and our kids. But still, I'm very cautious of basically everything. I don't take any of this for granted. I'm always aware that something bad could happen to us at any time. And even though I try not to overdo it, I catch myself jumping whenever there's a car that I don't recognize. 
pulling up somewhere in our street. I keep my eyes open is what I'm saying. And that's how about a week ago, I spotted something strange. I was standing by the kitchen window, absentmindedly glancing up to look outside from time to time, while I was carving up a watermelon for a snack. I stopped mid-motion when I saw him. There in the driveway of the house across the street stood a tall, large man, dressed in a tattered, white and pink bunny costume. The long ears attached to its hood stood upright, though part of the right one had been torn off. Unfortunately, I couldn't see much of his face. He was in an unsettling sight, especially since he was not moving an inch. His head was tipped back as he appeared to be staring up at our neighbor's window. I frowned, putting my knife aside and calling for Jean. My husband had been in the next room watching TV, but he came over when he heard me. Slightly alert by the unease in my tone, he stepped up to me and rested a hand on my arm. Something wrong? I gestured at the driveway. Look. Okay. He muttered slowly. That's weird. Should we tell him to move it or something? I suggested. He's freaking me out. No, don't worry. It's probably just Andrew playing the bunny for the girls. Jean replied. Andrew is the neighbor who lives in that house, together with his wife and two daughters. Jean had a point, but still, I wasn't convinced. Uh, look at the suit, though. It's like he pulled it out of the trash, I argued. Jean pulled a face, and I could tell that he agreed with me. Give me a second. He told me as he returned to the living room to grab his phone before coming back to me. I looked over his shoulder as he dialed Andrew's number. Hey, Andrew, it's Jean. Are you at home? Glancing out the window, I found that the bunny wasn't holding the phone. No way that was Andrew. Alright, yeah, you might want to look out your window. Jean went on, following my finger pointing at the figure. Andrew cursed loud enough on the other end for me to hear it. My husband quickly hung up, and we both squeezed against one another to look outside. Just seconds later, we saw our neighbor storm out of his front door, brandishing his daughter's measure baton like a baseball bat. The bunny immediately took off running regardless, and Jean and I started laughing. Take a photo, I gasped. Quick. We reached for his phone again, but by the time he had it ready... The bunny was a long con. Andrew isn't the guy to appreciate stupid pranks. He flips the second that he thinks you're up to something. And I totally get that to be honest. Since the bunny was gone, neither Andrew nor us thought it would be necessary to call the cops. We figured it was just a harmless freak. A one-time thing. Unfortunately... This was not to be the last time that we would see the strange man. Two years ago, Jean and I had surprised our kids with a cute little cocker spaniel. Philippa named it Chaucer, 
and when he's not inside with us, he's out in the yard. He has his own little house there. Jean sometimes says that the dog and I get along so well because we're similar in that we both always keep an eye out for everything that happens around the neighborhood. Chaucer barks a lot. Whenever someone enters our yard, someone that isn't us, of course, he starts yapping like crazy. He's a great security system. Even though where we live, we don't really need one. The most people here don't even lock their doors. Anyways, two nights after that first incident, my husband and I were startled awake by our dog. It was warm, so he was spending the night in the garden and we had kept the bedroom windows open to let in the cool air, so we had heard him immediately. Of course, my reaction was to jump out of bed, instantly on high alert. Jean groaned and mumbled something about squirrels in the yard as I had rushed to the window. The cause of Chaucer's fury, however, was not a little critter. When I saw the man in that gross, ragged bunny costume standing right outside our fence garden, it felt like my heart fell still for a moment. He stood still as a statue, staring down at our raging dog. It took me two seconds to get a grab, and then I started screaming. What the heck do you think you're doing? I bellowed. My voice certainly no quieter than that of Chaucer. Get the heck away from my house or I'll rip it. The bunny's head whipped up and he looked up at me. I was leaning out of the window far enough for him to see the look on my face. I hoped that he could tell I meant it. I felt Jean drop to me from behind, now a lot less sleepy. It's that guy again, I uttered, before shouting down at the stranger once more. If you're not gone in ten seconds, I'm calling the cops, and we'll both be down there with you before they get here. The bunny didn't respond, but he turned to leave nonetheless. He walked off slowly, not once looking back at us, leaving me standing at my window, breathing heavily. So what now? I asked Jean. We called the police or something. He shook his head. Not just because there's a guy walking around our street. Like, they're not going to do anything. What if he's out to rob someone? I argued. You can't tell me that he's just some random dude. I'm not saying that, but, well, yeah, maybe he is. Let's just turn in for tonight, and then the next time we see him, we'll call the cops. So, you do think there's a next time? Gene sighed. I meant if there is. I was a bit insulted that he didn't take my concerns too seriously. Then again, he had a point. It wasn't like anything bad had happened around here before. Whoever this bunny guy was most likely only wanted to give us a scare. Maybe he actually was one of our neighbors in disguise. A few of them actually came to mind once I had started thinking about it. Aaron, who lives a little further up the street, has a really strange kind of humor, and this kind of tasteless joke would probably be right up his alley. The only odd thing about this was that, if it had been him, he would have tried to disguise his face as well, 
Or at least, it would have been the smarter thing to do. Gene and I discussed that possibility on our way back to bed. And he assured me that he would drop by Aaron's place the next day and ask him about it. Aaron denied the whole thing. He had seen the bunny too though. According to him, he had found him peering over his garden hedge one day, watching his wife mow the lawn. That creeped me out even more, and Jean was starting to get unsettled as well. In the following days, our neighborhood changed. People started locking their doors more often. We all kept our eyes and ears wide open for any trace of the pink bunny suit. For a couple days, maybe even a week, nothing happened. We didn't spot him anywhere around and neither did our neighbors. We were all on edge, and the bunnies' sudden absence did more to increase our concerns than to relax us. We kept our makeshift weapons at the ready, and by that I mean household items that could be used as such. Jean and I had found a slim yet heavy and long fragment of a pipe up in the attic. We kept it in our bedroom just in case. Still, the break-in came as a shock to us. I don't know why the bunny chose our house for it. We certainly weren't the only ones who had threatened him, and not the only ones with frightened children. Yet for some reason, out of all the families in our neighborhood, it had to be us apparently. It was on a Friday night at around 2am. Jean and I were lying cuddled up in bed. The kids had been sleeping for hours and even Chaucer was keeping quiet down in the garden. I was still awake. I have these restless nights quite often. I don't really doze off then. I just shut my eyes and wait for unconsciousness to set in. So, there I was, wrapped up in my husband's arms with my head on his chest as I listened to his deep, rhythmic breathing. And that's when I heard the sound of a glass breaking. It was strangely quiet. Normally, you would expect a loud crash or something, but that wasn't the case, not this time. Kind of like the glass had been shattered in the gentlest, softest way possible. For a second, I thought I had imagined it. The senses often play tricks on you when you're on the edge of sleep. I sat up in bed nonetheless, holding my breath as I strained my ears to try and pick up any other sounds. At first, there was nothing. In fact, there was a nothing for a very long time. It seemed like an eternity to me, sitting upright in the dark bedroom, nervously looking around until I laid eyes upon the door. We had left it open before going to bed. Not wide open, just a crack so we could hear if the kids were up to anything. And it was through that crack that an unknown, hardly visible and yet familiar face was peering. A face framed by a pink hood, with two raggedy plush bunny ears on top of it. My heart stopped when I saw him. It sounds weird to put it like that, but I am truly certain that for a moment, it did not beat. For a split second, I was frozen and all I could do was sit and stare, almost like I was holding the gaze of that silent intruder.
and then I got up. Before I could even register my own movements, I had already sprung to my feet and grabbed the pipe by her bedside. I let out a sharp scream as I leapt for the door, a cry of fury, fear, and to alert my husband. The bunny had disappeared from the doorway in an instant, but didn't have the presence of mind to shut the door behind him, which could have slowed me down. That was an odd thing to think about, especially seeing as I was running down the stairs after the costume man at the time, but it was like a wholly different part of my brain had taken over the task of his pursuit, allowing me to think quite clearly about various other matters. The bunny made for the front door. He had a lead on me as he stormed outside into the garden, but then all of a sudden, I heard a familiar loud yapping, and the next thing I knew was that the man began to stagger, as though he had tripped over something and fell. In the very next second, I was on top of him. He was sprawled out on the ground, lying on his stomach, and I had jumped onto him, ramming both my knees into his back before smashing the pipe down on his head. I've said it before, I was out of my mind. That's how at first, I didn't even notice that my weapon of choice seemed to sink into the intruder's body rather than bouncing off of it. It was like I was beating a stuffed animal instead of a person. The man's flesh was steadily giving way beneath me, beneath my legs and my grip, the pipe. My blood ran cold. I instinctively jumped to my feet and before I knew it, the bunny man had gotten up and was racing down the street. He shouldn't have been able to. Heck, he shouldn't even have been able to get up. I made an attempt to take up the chase once more, but he was too fast. Still running, I watched him disappear into the darkness. As one by one, the lights came on in the surrounding houses and Jean came stumbling out through the open front door behind me. From that point on, everything else that happened that night seems blurry to me whenever I try to focus on it and remember. One by one, all the lights came out of the windows of the houses surrounding ours. The police came and I told them everything. Jean held me as I sat in our living room, trembling and shaking like a little leaf in the wind. The bunny man had entered the house by smashing the window in the back, thus avoiding alerting Chaucer. Still, our trusty guard dog had come to my aid at the very last minute. The thing the intruder had tripped over. It had been Chaucer. In the end, it doesn't really matter that I got to thrash him, seeing as he had gotten away nonetheless. Yet I feel better knowing I possibly taught him a lesson. I don't know what he had been planning on doing to us, what he would have done if I hadn't been awake that night, and I prefer not to think about it. The good thing is that everyone ended up being okay. The kids had nearly slept through the entire thing. Jean and I were unsettled but ultimately alright, and Chaucer was left jumping nervous by the events of the night, but that was all. Neither the police nor our neighbors could make anything of my strange observation, namely the odd feeling of the man's body. They suggested to me that I may have imagined it, that the shock had played a trick on my senses. That was certainly possible, I couldn't deny it. 
but the intruder had still been able to get up and run away from me after suffering multiple sound blows to his head, back, and legs. Everyone agreed that that part was astounding, bordering on inexplicable. In the weeks after, we met with our neighbors, talked to them, tried to come to a consensus on the nature of the stalker, but to no avail. Someone suggested that it was an alien, probably Aaron. It wasn't even a joke, more like a serious contemplation. Our neighborhood had never recovered from the shock. For years and years, nothing bad had happened there, nothing at all. And now this. Gene couldn't even believe it at first. He was distraught and frightened. He blamed himself for not defending us in my steed. Even though I told him again and again, there was no reason for that. He was scared that guy, that thing would come back. Everyone was. We thought about moving, just like our neighbors, but in the end, we stayed. The bunny never showed up again. I like to think that I left a lasting impression on him, just as he did to our neighborhood. We lock our doors more often these days. I can't speak for everyone, but my family as well as a couple others invested in safer, sturdier windows and higher fences. There was an influx in guard dogs in the homes as well. I don't know what those who will read this will make of my story. I don't even know what to make of it. It beats me, it really does. But if I had to describe this huge mess... If I had to label it somehow, I would say that, in conclusion, this is how a stranger in a bunny costume changed our entire neighborhood. The oceans are deep and something is coming to the surface. Written by 02321 When I was a child, not even a teen yet, I was taken from my family. My mother had too many children and I was the oldest. There is a chance that she sold me to support my siblings, but I would like to believe that the men who dragged me from my home threatened her, and the choice wasn't a choice at all. For the next ten years of my life, I lived on fishing boats, very rarely going ashore. That happens fairly often where I was born. Because of big fishing ships taking everything, locals needed to go further and further out, trying to get these scarce food to feed their families. Eventually, corruption rotted the fishing trade so thoroughly, every aspect of it was toxic. I believe if you start digging, you can find this information fairly quickly. But no one wants to dig. No one wants to know the cruelty that goes into the fish fingers they feed their child when they are too tired to cook a real meal. Large fishing ships destroy the seas. What they don't keep, they kill. These smaller fishing boats that treat their unwanted catches slightly better are run by crime organizations and human slaves. I was one of those people, but I have seen how others were treated. I did not have my freedom, but on the boat. I ended up I was treated almost like a human. 
I bounced around at first before remaining in the boat for five years. It was a decent size. It could carry 20 men, but that trip, we had an extra 10. Those 10 were going to be transported to an island and then scattered to other fishing boats. We had only been on the sea for a few days, but with the cramped living spaces and heat of the year, everyone was in a hot temper. Our captain could be a cruel man. If you got sick, it was cheaper to toss you into the sea instead of getting treated. On that trip, his brother N was on board. I met him often while I worked on the boat. His brother was cruel in a different way. He did everything the captain did, but he made you mad still like him afterwards. As much as I wanted it, I could not entirely dislike the man. He spoke to me like an adult and at times shared fresh fruit with the crew. I suppose it was to keep us somewhat healthy when they couldn't afford to buy a new worker. If you could do anything, go anywhere, what would you do? Anne asked me one day, leaning on the railing, looking off into the sea. I only know how to fish. I answered back, not pausing in my work. Man was like that. His kindness always had a motive behind it. He asked some of the others that he had on the boat these same sort of questions. One boy answered, telling truthfully of his dreams. Anne quickly got into the boy's head and found out that the boy and another man had a plan of escaping the boat. I never saw either of them again. I only hoped that they were sold somewhere else and not dumped overboard. The last time in that boat, Anne approached me again, trying to get me to open up about how the men were feeling. I knew that she only wanted to know if a mutiny was brewing due to our poor conditions. How long have we known each other? Five years. You've grown so much it's almost like you're your own child. How about you come up to the captain's room for a cold drink? The heat is going to kill someone today, and I would like it if you live till tomorrow. Man was smiling at me, fully expecting for me to agree. I knew his plan and wanted to dislike him for it, but he made it impossible. Uh, no thank you, I'll be fine. The captain would be asleep, trying to avoid the heat, so I was at no risk of him giving me a hard time. But if others on the boat saw me getting closer, any kind of favoritism, my life would become difficult. I saw N's face drop only a little. Even after the years, he still thought he was able to charm me. Still, I wish the wind would pick up. At this rate, we'll have to add an extra day to our trip. And commented. For a few hours, the wind had been calm, and then it stopped altogether. Without the wind to cool us down, we would be too overheated to work the boat and required more rest. Because some men were promised to others, the captain had to care about their well-being. I only nodded in agreement with N staring at me. He planned on getting into my head but gave up for that day. He would offer a different man the cold drink to try and get an inside look on how the crew was feeling. After he left me to my work, the oddest thing happened. 
something that I had never seen in the sea before. A fog rolled in. When we saw it coming in, I tried to get the boat moving to avoid it, but it just swept in at an unnatural pace. I had of course seen fog in the ocean before, but never without a difference in temperature never so fast in the middle of the day. I was on the deck when it happened. I stared off, trying to see anything in the dense mist. Ed had come out on the deck, looking as confused as the rest of us. Is that an island? Are we off course? He asked, his calm voice breaking. I could see a darker mass that did look like some sort of land off in the distance and through the mist. But we shouldn't be near any land. And it wasn't another ship. The shape was all wrong. It had to be an island, even though I had no idea how we had gotten so off course. We'll just wait out this mist and see where we are. I said trying to keep working even though my hands were shaking. I couldn't explain it. It was just mist, but the strange nature of it unnerved even myself. I was so busy trying to stay working that I didn't notice a different man go to the railing of the boat and peered down into the sea. I didn't know his name. It was easier on a person not knowing names of the people who passed through. There's a person down there, he shouted at Pennant. I got up and rushed over to try and see what he was pointing out. N came beside me and we all looked at spotting a pale form in the water. It was hard to see through the mist. As we were straining to see, another form came up. This one darker and easier to see than the first. And then another, and then another. Soon, the ship was surrounded by human-shaped forms bobbing in the water. Uh, did a ship crash? The man asked his dry voice and shaking. I was frozen by the sight of it all. And breaking out of my shock, I ran over trying to find anything to toss out to and try to save these people. If they could be saved. I was away from the railing when I heard the sound. I expected screaming or pleading from the people in the sea. But it wasn't that. It was a pleasant sound. A sound of voices mixed in with some sort of wind instrument that I had never heard before and never had heard since. My stomach turned into a ball of excitement. It flooded with the music that surrounded the boat. I saw the other men come on board, trying to find the sores, their faces unable to be seen through the mist. And then I heard the first splash. Forgetting the strange, pleasant feeling, I turned my head just in time to watch a man jump over the railing. And then another. I saw Ed's form and rushed over to pull him away, just as his body was started to move, trying to get off the boat. They thrashed in my arms, yelling at me, pleading to let him go. My years of hard labor made me stronger than him. If I could tie him down... I could move on to the next person, trying to save them as well. I regretted that I could only help one person at a time, and I didn't know why I was trying to save N first. He was the only man I could even remotely consider a friend, even after all the horrible things that I had seen him do. 
As I was trying to say then, the men rushed to their railings, jumping off, shouting that they heard their wives singing. For the unmarried ones, they were excited shouting about hearing female voices and how they could see such attractive young women in the ocean, just waiting for them to be saved. It was all happening so fast that I almost ignored what Anne was shouting. My daughter, she's out there. Let me go. I have to get her. I knew she wasn't dead. I just knew it. Her mother was lying. I didn't harm her, so let me go. My shaking hands were having trouble with the rope. I was able to almost get Anne tied down, but I stopped when those words sank into my mind. The other men were jumping out in lust, completely overtaken by the song. They were seeing the woman that they loved, or just woman they could love, and yet Ed was shouting about his daughter. The look in his eyes and how he struggled to be free made me nearly sick. I didn't confront my feelings. I didn't need to. Everything had happened so fast. And by the time that I let him go into the sea, where he belonged, the rest of the men had rushed out, leaving it impossible to save anyone. There had been innocent people on that ship, but I wasted my time trying to save the one man that had committed such a horrible crime in his past that I could not let myself think of it. I just let him go, and watched him in his glee jump off the side without any hesitation. I knew I was alone, but I still heard the song. Standing in the middle of the deck, looking out at the bobbing shaves, I still felt a fluttering in my stomach, but not the same pull the other men had. I stood waiting for something to happen, and I think the source of the song was also waiting. It knew that I was still on the boat. So it sang, trying to lure me into the sea with the rest of them. Slowly, I walked over closer to the railing to look out, but not to jump like the rest. In the water, the human shapes had their heads peeking above the surface, singing to me, but nothing else. I didn't see any signs of the crew in those waters. Eventually, the song stopped. I think whatever was making it knew I wasn't going into the sea. Suddenly, the boat rocked as if something massive had just passed beside it, or underneath it. I watched as the human forms started to move all at once. Some came out of the water a bit more, and even through the mist, I could see they were only the upper half of a human. Long hair covered their faces and limp arms moved with the sea. Their bodies formed into a long, thick rope-like mass that disappeared under the water. They all moved as one as they started to leave. I couldn't shake the feeling. The image that those bodies were all connected to an unseen mass deep in the ocean... Those bodies were like the lights on anglerfish. The song making their prey see those fake bodies as whatever they wanted to see. 
I was left alone with the boat on a silent ocean. The mist faded, leaving me with the horror of what had just happened. I sold the boat and used the money to get as far away from the ocean as possible. No one knew how, but they thought that I had killed everyone aboard. I couldn't tell them the truth. Even if they believed me, I would still be killed for selling the boat to a rival gang. I had thought about why I was spared. Those men heard something that made them lust enough to jump out into the sea. And that was the reason why I was spared. I never thought about it. I had no time to think about it working on those ships. But I never had uh, such desires. Even after I gained some freedom, I found myself never having the urge to get in such a relationship with anyone. I don't think that the creature had ever encountered something that it could not lure out. And thus, it had no idea how to deal with such a situation. I also had a thought about what the thing was. I think overfishing is the reason why that thing had come to the surface. Without its food source, it was trying to find the next best thing. The ocean is deep. We don't know what's under the waves and I pray we never find out. Before we get into our next story, I would like to take a minute to talk about one of today's sponsors, HelloFresh. I think most of us can relate with not having enough hours in the day, and always feeling like we don't have time to prepare a nice meal to eat. On top of that, grocery shopping can be a pain and before you know it, you've spent entirely too much time wandering aisles and dodging other shoppers. Now it's late and you're stressed out because you still don't have anything made and you're hungry. HelloFresh solves all of these issues and it helps you save time and money. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. And they have options for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And even that late night snack. Shh, don't worry, I won't tell. I've recently tried out HelloFresh and I really enjoy it so far. My go-to recipe is the creamy shrimp tagliatelle. It sounds fancy, I know. HelloFresh breaks down the recipe steps really easily so even I can make it. And it tastes amazing. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash CreepsCast12 and use code CreepsCast12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash CreepsCast12 and use code CreepsCast12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit for sponsoring today's episode. I started a job at a library. They left me some odd rules. Written by The Dragon Writes.
I, uh, I'm writing this now as I hide in the bathroom. There is a horrible wolf thing, and it's roaming around the library as I speak. Let's start at the beginning. It was morning when I woke up and the sun was shining, and everything around me was cheerful except me, of course. It was a Monday when I was making a bowl of my favorite cereal. I sat down and picked up my phone. I was scrolling through it when I saw a reminder. The reminder read, Make sure to go to the library at 8.30 for a job interview. I had completely forgot. There was no more time for breakfast and I had to go to my interview. I ran down the stairs in a hurry and I opened the door. I was running so fast that I forgot it was icy out. I slipped and I ran into my car. My face was hurting a little bit now and I went for my nose. When I felt around, there was no sign of blood. I went for my car door and I opened it. I started my engine and I booked it to the library. I barely made it there in time. Once at the library, I went inside and I talked to the manager. Hey, good morning. Are you the new worker? He said in a gruff voice. Well, yes, sir, I am. My name is Jacob. The manager waved me away. Yeah, yeah, my name's Jacob. So, kid, why do you want this job? He looks serious now. Well, yes, James. Um, I need it. I hated how whiny my voice sounded, but James didn't notice. Well, Jacob, are you good at following rules? He looked at me, his eyes narrowing. I wasn't really, but it was a library. It couldn't be too hard. Yeah, I am, sir. My voice cracked as I looked at James' narrowing eyes. Good. And be back here at 10.30. It's when your first shift starts. I looked at him confused, but I didn't dare to say a word. Okay, I'll be there. I was about to turn around and leave when James spoke up. Wait, there's something that I need to give to you first. James handed me a piece of paper, and on it were the rules of the job. It was almost 10.30 and I had to be to work soon. I hadn't bothered to read the rules yet. I looked at my watch and it said 10.25. I went out of my house and I got into my car with the rules in hand. I scoffed at how weird this was. Wouldn't the library be closed at this time? I looked at the list of rules and decided that I would just read them when I got there. A few minutes later of driving, I saw the old library. It looked even worse at night. It had cracked windows, faded paint, and brown grass surrounding the building. The library was always creepy, and that's why I never went near it as a kid. But now, I had a job in it, so I had to. I opened the front doors and I sat down at the front desk. I picked up the rules and looked at them, laughing as I read them. Rule number one. If a customer comes in, give them whatever they want. They will usually ask for a red ribbon. If they do, then look in the bottom left drawer and give them it. If they ask for a book... Sign it out like you would do with any other customer. Rule number two. Never look into a customer's eyes. If you do, 
they will try and take yours. If you do look into their eyes, you must get some water and pour it onto them. This will make them scream and disappear. I looked up as I heard a door open. It was a customer. I made the mistake of looking into its eyes. The customer's eyes were a deep red. There were no pupils or irises, only red. It screamed and lunged over the counter. Give me your eyes. Its voice was hoarse as if never speaking in years. I looked around and I found a water bottle. I grabbed it and opened the lid. I threw the bottle at the creature's face and it hissed. The creature's body began to smoke. It was awful. And all that was left of the creature was the smell. I ran back to the desk quickly and read more of the rules. But this time, I believe them. Rule number three. If you hear a scraping sound coming from the manager's door, open it and say, Sir, please stop. And it should. It won't return until the next day. Rule number four. If you hear a barking from outside, hide in any room and lock the door. If you make a sound, it'll get you. The creature is blind and it will leave the next morning. I sighed and looked at the books all around me. I heard a door open and almost screamed. It was another customer. I looked at its feet and didn't look up. Excuse me, sir. Can you give me a red ribbon? Its voice sounded like a human's, but its feet had claws. It stood on two legs. It must have been about six feet tall. Uh, yes, of course. As my hand shook, I opened the bottom left drawer and got a red ribbon. I handed it to the thing and it gave me some coins. Thank you, sir. It walked out of the room, its tail following. I then heard a scraping from inside of the manager's room and I stood up. I hate my job already. I grumbled and opened the door. Sir, please stop. The creature hissed and I heard footsteps retreat. That was when I heard a barking and the sound of glass breaking. One after another, I'll tell ya. I looked for the closest room and I booked it. The thing must have heard me do it and it ran towards me. I ran into the bathroom and I locked the door behind me. I heard a growling followed by a bang. The creature was trying to get in. I'm panicking now. I knew I shouldn't have gotten this job. It's a nightmare. My phone is about to die and I haven't read all the rules yet. I will do nothing until it is morning. The manager said that he would be back at about 6. And that's like 3 hours away. Wish me luck. It's now 4 in the morning and the barking has stopped. But I'm afraid to open the door. I should have got the rules list so I would know what to do. But now uh, the boredom has gotten a hold of me and I might open the door. I'm afraid that if the creature is still there, it'll attack me. I checked under the door but I don't see anything. So I locked the door and I peeked out. Nothing. No creature. I was safe for now. I looked at the clock above the bathroom door to see it turn to 4.01am. I sighed. 
there are still two hours until my shift is done. And maybe if I survive, there might be more. I looked at the front desk to see the list of roles. I sat down and continued reading. Rule number five. If you hear a noise in the vents, get a book and a lighter and run out of the building to burn the book. The creature will see a fire and run. It hates fire. I looked at rule five and wondered why it was scared of fire. I continued reading. Rule number six. If there are multiple customers at once, kill them all. There should only be one customer at a time. The more customers there are, the more angry they become. I looked at the water bottle on my desk. It was almost empty. I looked around and searched for a water fountain, and I filled my bottle up at once. I noticed a small glow coming off one of the books, and I quickly looked at the rules again. Rule number six. If a book is glowing, put it outside. The more that I looked at the book, the more that it glowed. After a few minutes, I couldn't take it anymore. I threw the book outside and I headed back inside. Rule number eight. If you see a tall creature with a hat and a human-like face, well, that is Sam. Sam is a nice creature and he will help you out with the bugs if you give him the glowing bug. The glowing book should be outside so you won't have a problem with Sam. I looked outside to see the glowing bug. I looked back at the clock to see that it was now 4.37 a.m. Rule number nine. If you feel the tap on your shoulder, do not turn around. Just don't. This is probably the most important rule. If you turn around, you will see nothing. If you turn back around, though, you will be greeted with the trickster. The trickster will then paralyze you until the morning. And let's just hope that you survive till then. Right on time, I felt a tap on my shoulder, and I was about to turn around when I realized it was the trickster. I stared in front of me, but it was hard. It was like the trickster was pulling me in. I looked at the rules again to see if there was anything to do. Rule 9 continued. If you're visited by the trickster, then make sure that you stand up and say, Dang, I need a break. When you say this, walk to the restroom. The trickster should leave you alone for now. I looked at my feet inside. I stood up. Dang, my back's killing me. I need a break. I ran towards the restroom and I closed the door. That was close, I sighed. This time, I had made sure to bring the rules with me. Rule number 10. If you hear laughter coming from outside, close your eyes until it stops. I looked at the clock. It was now 6.35. A searing pain went through my hand as I looked down on it. Where fingernails used to be were claws, and where flesh was were blue scales. My eyes started to burn and I held them. I had to get out of here. I grabbed the rules and I dashed to my car. As I made it inside my car, I read the rules again. Rule 11. Don't stay longer than your shift. You must always leave at 6. If you don't, 
you will turn into one of the creatures like Sam. I drove as fast as I could to my house. My hand was on fire and so were my eyes. I heard a scraping in my car and I pulled the brake. I looked behind me but there was nothing. I inhaled as I heard the scraping again. It was getting louder in sound. I turned around again but saw nothing. Who's there? Show yourself. As I spoke, the scraping stopped. But it was followed by a loud, blood-curdling scream. I looked around to see the big wolf-like creature again. But it wasn't even a wolf. Where a tail should be was a long canine-like jaw. And where paws should have been were bird-like talons. The face of the beast was like something you would have seen from the thing. This creature... It was real. I was frozen in fear. It came closer to me until finally it was right next to my car. Its words were slow and cold. Its eyes were almost lifeless. Its breathing was raspy. You humans are so stupid. You destroy the things you love. You build stupid contraptions that are useless to us. You use a dark magic to trap us in these buildings. You write us like you write a character, a thing. We used to live in peace, but you humans became filthy with greed. You are what plagues this world. After the thing stopped, I gasped. What did it mean by trapped in buildings? I looked out my window again, but it was gone. All that was left was a single piece of paper. And what was written on it was, You are different somehow. You listen, but you don't follow through with what you need to do. Human, if you want to live, then you need to help me. Destroy the library, and you will be fixed of any mistake that you have caused. Please, human, help us. It's hard trying to sleep and seeing that your hand is scaly and blue. I decided not to sleep today, so everything was pretty bad. I stood up, my body sweaty and stiff. I slowly walked to the bathroom. I had to brush my teeth. I opened the wooden door and I grabbed my toothbrush. I glanced in the mirror and was horrified that one of my eyes was bright green. My other eye was still brown. Today should be interesting. I squirted some toothpaste on my toothbrush. Its minty scent made my mouth water. I brushed my yellow tinted teeth and spit out the toothpaste. I looked at my phone and saw that it was almost 10.30pm. I headed into my living room and grabbed my car keys and the list of rules. I looked at the list and realized that something was off. There was no seventh rule. I looked over and over again, not seeing the seventh rule. The heck? What if I break it? I'm screwed. I grumbled under my breath. I was about to open my front door and realized that I needed gloves for my hands. I walked into my kitchen and I opened a drawer. There is a pair of light gray gloves in it along with toothpicks. I ran towards my front door and I opened it. I slammed my car door shut and I sped to the library. I almost ran into my manager, James. What? Jacob, what are you doing? 
I looked at James and gasped for breath. Sorry, I didn't want to be late. James looked at me confused, looked at his watch and then croaked. Well, okay, get in there before customers come. I opened the door to the library and realized that I needed to ask James about rule number seven. I ran back outside and looked around. Wait, James... But he wasn't anywhere to be seen. And then I remembered that my car was the only car there. I looked around and saw nothing but shadows. I shrugged it off and went back into the library. I looked over the rules again and spotted that where rule 7 should be was panic crossing it out. All I could make out were rule number 7. Don't trust the person named Jay. There is no man. That was all I could make out. I looked at the seventh rule again. What did it mean by man? Was there a man here before? Probably, but why cross it out? Is the man a dangerous creature? I heard laughter. I looked over the rules again and remembered rule number 10. I closed my eyes immediately. I could hear kids laughing, but it didn't really sound like laughing. It was mixed with sobbing and screaming. I opened my eyes a little and immediately the laughing got louder. It felt like my head was going to explode, my eyes closed, and my ears started to bleed. But finally, what felt like hours, the screaming stopped. I opened my eyes as little light blobs ran across my vision. I closed my eyes again and I shook my head. I stealthily opened them to hear a door opened and a shuffle across the floor. Hello, human boy. Could I speak to the manager? I gulped. There were no rules about this. And then an idea struck me. Uh, sure, just follow me. I grabbed my water bottle as I heard a arrogant hiss. I quickly turned around and sprayed at the hideous creature. Its brown fur smoking and its red eyes melting all over its face. It then screeched to me. No, you idiot. I'm trying to help you. I have read your rules for years, and rule seven is the most danger. It couldn't speak anymore, as its throat got charred and it cracked open. I huffed as I heard a scraping from the manager's room. I opened the door and I spoke calmly. Sir, please don't do that. It scratched the door again and retreated. I sighed as I remembered what happened yesterday. I was about to scratch my ear as I remembered there was blood. I grumbled as I saw some cloth on the table, grabbed a piece of tape, and then taped the cloth over my ears. I shouldn't have done that because the cloth just muffled the sound, and I barely heard the sound of the door opening and a bark after that. When I heard the barking, I booked it for the bathroom again. I closed the door behind me as I heard the ripping of flash and a screech that sounded like a customer. I grumbled as I took off my temporary bandage. Now I could hear everything clearly. The barking stopped as I heard paw steps retreat, or what I thought were paws. I looked at my phone to realize that it was almost 6am. I unlocked the door and I headed towards the exit of the library. 
and I almost ran into James again. Whoa, um, Jacob, be careful. I stifled a sigh as I remembered Rule 7. No, wait, James, what's Rule 7? James' face went white and he stared at me. He took a breath to calm down. Nothing, Jacob. I made a mistake and I crossed it out. I looked at him and wondered. Then why didn't you change Rule 8 to be 7? James looked at me, his eyes narrowing. Like I said, Jacob, it's a mistake. I need help. I don't know why James is being suspicious. What should I do? I don't know who to trust. Oh, crap. I just remembered yesterday. Is the wolf from yesterday the wolf from Rule 4? I think I really need help. I feel like I'm going insane. And what does the wolf mean by trapped inside the building? It was walking right next to the door. And what about Rule 7 was making James act so weird? Then again, I didn't really know who James was. Did James trap those things in the library? I was sitting outside of the library looking at it, wondering what to do. I had a couple of matches in my pocket, just in case. I looked around as I heard a rustle in the bushes. A low growl came from it. I grabbed the knife in my pocket and I stepped out of my truck. Who's there? My voice was hard and cold. I looked into the bush and noticed lifeless eyes staring down at me. Mellow human, you know what you must do. It was the wolf again, the creature from before. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, I retorted, knowing what it wanted. You're lying to yourself, human. You always do. Even when the answer is right in front of you. The creature croaked. Wait, what do you mean I lie to myself all the time? My voice cracked as I finished. Humans always lie. Even the person who trapped us here lied to you. The creature sounded sad. I looked at it confused. Wait, who imprisoned you? I looked at the creature as something began to laugh. The laughing then became screaming. Close your eyes, I screamed, and I hoped the creature had heard me. I heard a breaking of bones as the laughing came to a halt. I opened my eyes to see the creature standing over a mangled corpse of what looked like a customer. What, what is that thing? The creature looked up at me and scoffed. They're from a different dimension, but trapped here. And in your world, it's called Rule 10. The creature finished. You sound like you hate the rules. Why is that? The creature looked at me. Its lifeless eyes narrowed in anger. You really don't know why I hate the rules. Its ears laid flat on its head. I hate the rules because they bound us to that place. They turn us into lifeless husks, rewriting our every move. The creature looked down at me inside. And I'm afraid that you're our only hope of getting out of here. I was about to speak when the creature began to quiver. Its eyes started to roll back into its head. It snapped its gaze to me and whimpered. Quick, human. If you want to live, go hide somewhere. Before it overtakes me. I did as the creature said and ran to hide inside a bush. 
I looked closely at the creature, and as I was watching, a loud bark came from it, followed by many more. This creature was rule number four. If this creature was the thing from rule four, that means that there are others like it. Why was the creature acting like this? Wasn't it in control earlier? And then it all hit me. The rules are what forced the creatures to stay here. The rules controlled them. But why would anybody want to control them? And I turned around as I heard a twig snap. The wolf was trying to find me. It was sniffing me out. And I grabbed a rock and threw it in a different direction. The rock made a loud bang as it hit my car. The creature snapped its neck in the direction of my car and began to claw at it furiously. And then I heard it. The library door opening and closing. It was a customer. I looked at the wolf as it charged for the door. The door splintered into pieces as the wolf came charging in. It grabbed the customer and pulled it outside. It screamed as the wolf began to bite into the customer's arm. The customer wailed as the wolf went for the throat. The wolf ripped out the throat as the customer went limp. I turned away as the scent of copper came flooding into my nose. A familiar voice came ringing in my ears. Human, are you there? I turned around to look at the wolf. The wolf looked around as it spoke. Human, it's okay. After I killed the creature, I changed back. I sighed as I walked out of the bush. I looked at the sky to see that it was becoming dawn. So what happened? The wolf seemed to grow larger as it looked down at me. Like I keep saying, humans, the people who trapped us here bound us to the building and is controlling us with the rules. I looked up at the wolf. I was an idiot. I completely ignored the facts. I heard footsteps quickly approaching. The wolf sniffed the air and ran into the woods. I noticed a dark figure standing outside of the woods. And as the sun began to rise, I saw that it was James. I was confused at what James was looking at. I turned around and saw that he was looking at where the wolf went. I waited until James was inside the building. I slowly walked out of the woods, careful not to make a sound. I didn't want to see James see me coming from the woods because he was acting weird. I opened the door to my now very broken truck. I found my key and I started my engine. James looked through the window and looked at my truck. And he watched as I left the library. I was halfway down the street as I heard a whisper. I turned my head and I saw those lifeless eyes. Human, you must burn down the library before he has his grasp over this planet too. I stepped on my brakes and fully turned around. What do you mean, wolf? The wolf narrowed its eyes and growled. Foolish human, why does it have to be you? Why do you have to be the one to save us? I looked at the wolf wondering why he couldn't burn the library. Why can't you just do it? Well, human, since I'm bound to the library, I can't destroy it. And since you're not, you can. I looked back up at the lifeless eyes. And why should I trust you? 
How do I know the library is protecting us? The wolf lashed its tail and barked. Because, human, in a few days, the witch will get more and more power until he has enough to control this planet. And if you don't want to get controlled, I think you might want to burn it down. I sighed, closed my eyes and took a few deep breaths. I opened my eyes again to see that the wolf had disappeared. I felt a searing pain in my hand and found that the scales on my hand were spreading. I yelled in pain as my eyes and legs were hurting as well. Everything began to hurt. The wolf was right. Whoever made the library was getting more powerful. I needed to stop them before they could control me. I drove to the library as fast as I could. I opened my door and I slammed it shut. I saw a light flicker inside and I saw James. I went into my pockets and grabbed my matches. The fire in my hands was bright. I threw the match at the wooden door and it began to burn. I went into the forest and I got some kindling and dead leaves too. Anything that was dry and I burned it. I was about to put a dead log into the burning building, but I couldn't move. My body trembled and stopped. I heard a familiar voice in my ears. Foolish boy. Should have listened to the wolf. Soon, I will have enough power to control everything. You shouldn't have listened to me. You shouldn't have got this job. You should have listened to rule number seven. Rule seven. Don't trust the person named James. There is no manager. There is something in the deep woods of northern Sweden. Written by Junebug Rules. I went to a garage sale in my local town a few days ago. I live in Sweden and so secondhand shops and car boot sales are very common. At least out in the countryside. Often, I just end up browsing the stalls without really intending to buy anything. The one that I visited a few days ago was in a village about a half hour's drive from where I live. The second-hand store was just literally one room, packed with all sorts of riffraff that should have been thrown away ages ago, rather than being sold for far more than what it was worth. On my way out, something caught my eye that I couldn't resist taking a closer look at. It was a history book about the local area, and because I had recently moved here for work, I got curious and decided to buy it. Inside were a few loose papers, with handwritten notes which took some time to decipher due to the fading of the ink. I don't know who it belongs to, or if the story on the pages were even true, but I thought maybe you guys would be interested in hearing about it. Before I begin, I need to be honest with you. You see, the thing is, is that this story isn't mine to share, but I feel like I have to. I've spent too many years feeling guilt pressing against my chest, and if I don't tell you now... It'll go with me to my grave, and I would like to leave this life with a clear conscience. Another thing you need to know is that I've changed some details such as the names of those involved, 
any locations just to allow them some privacy. I apologize if I seem a little cryptic, and I don't mean to sound like one of those conspiracy theorists, but you'll understand. I promise. Some of you reading this might have kids of your own, or maybe you're still deciding whether or not parenthood is for you. I just want to tell you this. I am so sorry. Anyway, I guess I should start at the beginning. My name is unimportant, but to make it easier for you, let's just call me Edwin. Ever since I was a kid, I loved making up stories. By the time I started school and I learned to write, it was almost impossible to make me stop. Back then, there were no smartphones, computers, or iPads, or what have you. The only thing we had was a good old pen and paper. Soon enough, Swedish became the subject that I excelled in and my grades were always high. One of my teachers used to say that I had been born with the gift of words. I could look around me and transform my surroundings into fantastical adventures. It was a way for me to cope with the repetitiveness and mundane nature of daily life. To that end, I feel it's important for you to understand that I have never been a city person, and I'm not the only one. You see, my family comes from northern Sweden, an area known locally as Tornadalen. When I say north, I mean way above the Arctic Circle, in the middle of literal nowhere surrounded by forests and mountains. My old man grew up in a minuscule village in the northernmost part of Tornadalen, on either side of the rippling waters of Torn River, and an hour's drive from Kirina. Dad grew up in a small homestead with four older brothers and my late grandmother, who to this day is the kindest woman that I've ever known. I never met my grandfather, as he passed away when my dad was 16 years old, and so my grandmother was forced to raise five boys all alone while running a small grocery store. There wasn't much grandma couldn't handle, and God help anyone who dared to challenge her. And during the first few years of my life, I lived in that homestead with my family. I attended school in the local village and I liked it well enough. If you've never lived in the countryside, it's almost impossible to convey the freedom of living so far away from the city. Summer months were spent exploring every single path, stream, or hunting cabin with my friends. The eternal light from the midnight sun turned the whole world into a playground, and we would stay awake until we simply were too tired to keep our eyes open. In those days, parents didn't care as much about their kids' whereabouts, so long as you were home for supper. During the winter months, we used snowshoes to get around in the woods, which were now covered by a thick blanket of white, pottery snow. If you were lucky and it was cold enough, you might catch a glimpse of the green shimmer from the northern light dancing on the sky. I remember my grandmother once telling me that according to folklore, people believed the lights were souls dancing on their way to the afterlife. At some point in the 60s, Dad and I moved to Stockholm where there were better job opportunities. We both missed living in the north and so every school holiday was spent in the small village by the river. We would spend those holidays fishing, 
both ice and normal fishing, hiking trips and overnight stays in old hunting cabins. Some of my fondest memories from those days were when we followed old ski tracks, placed reindeer skins in the snow, and then lay there for hours enjoying the warm sunlight of early spring. We often sat in comfortable silence, without feeling the need to say much, but sometimes, just as the first colors of twilight appeared, Dad would tell me ghost stories, even though I was way too young. Summer holidays seemed endless, and I often explored every single corner of the village with my old friends. Sometimes, we would set up tents in some secluded meadow, and retell those ghost stories first shared by our parents. I wish I could tell you that I continued visiting the village in my teenage years, but with all the things brought on with puberty and when I eventually started university, the year that I turned 19, I had almost forgotten all about the little village up north. When it comes to my mom, there is not much to say. She's never been a part of my life, and I learned early on that there is no point asking questions about her. My only memory of her is a vague scent of lavender, which she had used as perfume. If I'm completely honest, I'm not even sure that I know her name. And that's probably why Dad sounded so surprised when I offered to travel up for Easter during my second year at university. And even now, I'm not sure why I was so keen to go. But when I heard that my uncle hadn't been seen for a few days, I just knew something was wrong. And Dad couldn't go because he was tied up with work, and none of the other brothers had a very great relationship with my uncle, because they thought he was a little more eccentric than what was socially acceptable. In their defense, they weren't wrong, but they also rarely spoke about him, and just like my mother, I learned to simply not ask questions. My Uncle H was Dad's oldest brother who, a few years ago, decided to move back to their childhood home. He had grown tired of city life and missed the tranquility and silence of the far north. Dad always said that when you get older, you get this yearning to go back to your roots. Honestly, I can't remember a single Saturday morning when Uncle H didn't phone us to talk about the latest gossip in the village. Now, before I continue, I feel like I have to explain what winter is like in the north because I honestly don't think you can understand it unless you've experienced it yourself. Imagine waking up in the morning and it's so eerily silent that not even the birds who sometimes stay over winter are awake. It is so bone-crushingly cold that when it hits you, it's as if thousands of sharp needles are piercing into your skin all at once. Not only can you see your breath, you can practically touch it. And then there's sun which doesn't rise until late in the day, and only stays up for a couple of hours before, making its all-too-quick descent behind the horizon. I began my journey on the day before Maudie Thursday, when I flew from my small university town to the north, where I met up with one of my childhood friends whose car I was borrowing to drive to the village. The moment that I stepped in through the front door with its familiar squeaky hinges, my childhood memories instantly came flooding back. I could almost smell Grant's freshly baked bread and warm laughter echoing through the hallway. Two empty coffee cups stood on the kitchen table and a half-eaten cinnamon bun, which is practically societal hearsay in Sweden, 
Other than some dried reindeer meat, a loaf of bread, and half a liter of milk, the fridge was depressingly empty. Maybe Uncle Oich was in a rush somewhere and hadn't been able to buy groceries. It was still strange and not like him to tell anyone where he was headed. At that point, I realized that it was both too late and too dark to go out and look for Uncle Age. Not to mention, the nights were even more freezing than during the day. And to be completely honest, I had no idea where to begin my search. Besides, if I spent the next few days with the house as my base of operations, my first priority was to make sure that I didn't freeze to death inside. I spent most of that evening cranking up the heat in the fireplace and making myself comfortable in the lounge. City life, I realized, had spoiled me with its modernities like electric heating and the simplicity of life above the Arctic Circle. It was almost forgotten to me. Even though the house was a more than familiar part of my life, I still felt like a stranger here. An eerie feeling lingered in the air that I couldn't quite describe. The closest thing that I can think of is that it felt as though I was trespassing. Maybe it was the general fatigue of the journey here, or my worry over Uncle H's disappearance catching up to me. To silence my worry in mind, I decided to plan what tomorrow would look like. Many of the families from my childhood still lived in the village, and I thought that perhaps one of them had seen my uncle over the past few days. An angry and hungry growl came from my stomach, and I quickly made a sandwich with smoked sausage, which I devoured with a glass of cold milk. I thanked my past self for packing an extra duvet in the car, because I was convinced that whatever bedding remained in the old wardrobes were covered in damp and likely partially eaten by moth larvae burying themselves into the fabric. Nevertheless, I made myself comfortable in the old sofa bed, and finally began to feel more at peace as I stared into the fire, feeling myself being hypnotized by the hot glowing embers and the dancing flames. Just before my eyelids became too heavy to stay open, I thought I heard a vague buzzing sound just outside, almost as if there were voices creating a melody traveling with the wind. I was awoken at 4 o'clock in the morning by the deafening bell of my grandfather clock in the kitchen, Cursing myself for forgetting its loudness, I decided there was no point in going back to sleep. So I made myself a cup of coffee and flicked through an old local newspaper. I'm not sure what made me look out the window, but I almost choked on the coffee when I saw a crouching silhouette on the edge of the forest, trudging through the snow towards the house. And my heart began to race when I realized that I had nothing to defend myself with. And if I did, what was I going to do? It was only when the figure got closer to the house that I recognized the more distinct features of the shape. It was my uncle. Without even putting on my shoes, I ran out to him. He was limping as though he had been injured, but he still carried a rifle in one hand, but his jacket was covered in blood. Even though he looked right at me, the look in his eyes was still distant. What the heck happened? I asked, but my uncle only muttered something in Finnish that I couldn't understand. There is no need for a doctor to tell me that he was in shock. Uh, come on, I said to him. Let's go inside. What the hell, boy? He cursed. What are you doing here? Don't tell me your father sent you. 
I explained that when nobody had heard from him. Dad got worried and I offered to come up here. As soon as we got inside, I lit the stove to make more coffee and then recalled seeing half a bottle of vodka in the pantry, which I put on the table along with a glass next to it. But my uncle drank directly from the bottle. A few moments later, I poured two cups of strong black coffee, and for a while we just sat there in silence. I wondered if I should call an ambulance, but then my uncle told me what had happened to him. Uncle H explained that he had been visiting a relative on the other side of the river, and as per usual, it got a little later than planned. At some point in the middle of the night, he decided to make his way home through the woods like he did so often. Snowshoes made it easy to make his way across the massive amounts of snow covering the ground, and whatever alcohol remained in his system, it kept him warm. Even though my uncle had tracked through those woods ever since he was a little boy, a strong feeling of unease crept up his back. It made the hair stand on the back of his neck. By the light of the moon, he thought there were shadows moving towards him, accompanied by a strange buzzing sound in the wind. And then he saw them, dozens if not hundreds of children whose faces were unnaturally pale, and their eyes were entirely hollow. The creatures dragged themselves up from the snow and made the most unnatural sound my uncle had ever heard. It was deafening and heartbreaking all at the same time, and he was overcome by emotions that he could not name. A bony hand grabbed his ankle and another opened their mouth which turned into a massive, gaping black hole. My uncle told me that he had never run so fast in his life. Uncle Age didn't say much the next day. Mostly, he just wondered how long I was planning to stay, and when I told him that I would be around for a few days, he seemed pleased that he wouldn't be alone over Easter. However, when I told him that, I was going to call my dad to let him know that everything was alright. My uncle made me swear to not recount what he had told me. He said that it was probably for the better if it stayed between us, seeing as the rest of our family already thought of him as a little strange. I gave him my word and so, when dad wondered what had happened, I simply told him that my uncle got lost in the forest on his way home. Dad muttered something about a stubborn old man but didn't ask any more questions. After I hung up, I turned to my uncle who sat by the kitchen table and stared out the window. My mouth hung open as I struggled to form the words even though the questions were clear in my mind. I know you don't believe me, boy, my uncle said, as if he had read my mind. But surely you've heard the stories... Those about people who get lost in the woods and never make it back because they've been taken by the myline. I wish I understood what he meant, but then a vague memory resurfaced somewhere in the back of my mind. Uncle H nodded at the chair and I sat down, nervous about what I was going to hear. A part of me didn't want to dismiss his experience, but I didn't believe in ghosts and ghouls. And then he told me something that, to this day, uh, I wish I had never heard. When Uncle H's dad and their brothers were younger, they often traveled to the neighboring village on Saturdays to attend barn dances. Sometimes, girls from larger cities would attend the dances and, if you were lucky, 
you might get a dance, a phone number, and to promise to meet again. That's where Dad uh, saw her for the first time. Uncle H said that if there was ever a moment where he believed in love at first sight, that was it. He recalled exactly how the look in Dad's eyes changed, and when my uncle followed at Dad's gaze, he noticed a girl that he'd never seen there before. Her long, blonde and curly hair glimmered in the light, and she wore a green, knee-length dress. Uncle H thought that she might have been there with some friends, but she was standing away from other girls as if she was avoiding them. After a while, Dad eventually plucked up the courage to speak with her, and when they danced, he was enchanted. Afterwards, everything happened so quickly, and the only thing Dad would talk about was his new love. Uncle H explained that he and the other brothers just assumed it was yet another crush that would fade like it always did, but this time, they were wrong. Uncle H told me that my mother loved my father as much as he loved her, but she was carrying a terrible secret. In small communities like the ones up north, rumor spreads like wildfire, and keeping anything to yourself is pretty much impossible, and my mom knew she didn't have much time. Being pregnant with a child that wasn't my dad's and that was born in secret can make life incredibly difficult for a family. My dad would have struggled to find decent work, with which he could support his new family. So, after the birth of my half-sibling, my mom knew what she had to do. It's not difficult to hike into the forest and bury a child so that nobody finds out about it. Women in these parts have been doing that for hundreds if not thousands of years. Who knows how many unloved and illegitimate children are buried in the woods of the north. On the surface, my parents had a happy marriage, and a year after their wedding, I was born. According to my uncle, Dad had never been as happy as the first time he held me in his arms, just as enchanted as the first time he saw my mom. There was never any doubt that my mom loved me with her whole heart, but Uncle H also knew that she still carried with her the grief of burying her first child. You could see it in her eyes, until she sometimes stared out the window into the forest. One late winter's night, she never came home. My dad was hysterical and looked everywhere without any result. The whole village made a joint effort to find her, and after a few hours, her body was found in the woods. The strange thing was, instead of being frozen, it was almost completely charcoaled as if it had been devoured by an unnatural fire. The worst part of it all, though, was the shape of what once had been a child in the body's arms. My dad never spoke about what happened. He never met another woman, even though Uncle H and the others told him to move on with his life, get married again, and give me a chance to grow up with a mother. Dad refused and moved far away from the village in the north, to these cities of the south where he could hide his grief, in the exhaust fumes and sweat from the ever-growing masses of the city, far, far away from the woods of the north. I'm writing this down out of pure selfishness and to ease the burden that's been weighing on my heart for years. Most of you won't believe me, and that's fair enough, I suppose. My cousins remain blissfully ignorant of my family's secret, these days, they have kids and even grandkids. 
Sometimes, just like I did when I was younger, they spend school holidays in the village in the north. I can't help but wonder if sometimes they might have heard that same melodic buzzing in the wind just before going to bed at night. I booked a cabin in the middle of nowhere. What happened next scarred me for life. Written by Mr. Martin Sight. I groaned inwardly as the first drops of rain began to fall. I had planned everything so meticulously. The exact date so it wouldn't interfere with work. The flight booking. Searching the internet for hours on end for the perfect location. Only to overlook something so obvious. The bloody weather. I cursed under my breath as the rain picked up momentum covering the windshield of my newly rented car. And to make matters worse, I was starting to think that I was lost. I was out here because I needed to get away from it all. Eat, sleep, work. The same routine month after month. It was driving me crazy. So, I decided to take advantage of my paid leave and book a log cabin all the way in Finland. Just me, alone, in a forest in the middle of nowhere, for an entire week. So, here I was, on some obscure network of roads, surrounded by dark, impenetrable woodland. The wind whistled like a siren as I tried to figure out the direction I was supposed to be heading in. At this point, the drumming of rain was all I could hear. My GPS had lost signal, and I could barely see through the windows. I could just about make out a yellow blur through the windshield, which I assumed was a sign offering directions. I rolled the window down, hoping to read it from the shelter of the car but winced when the water immediately splashed inside. I rolled the windows back up. This wasn't my car after all, and I had to return it in perfect condition. Stealing myself, I pulled the hood of my jacket up and opened the door. Immediately, the rain hammered itself upon me in a relentless fashion leaving me drenched as I miserably trudged towards the bright yellow sign, which fortunately, it had what I was looking for. The resort where my cabin is located should be no more than two kilometers away. I was about to turn and leave, but from the corner of my eye, I noticed some words hastily spray-painted on the sign. Beware of the Vi. What on earth was that supposed to mean? No idea. The letters were washed out and fading, and it was impossible to read the rest of the last word. I shrugged it off. I was only getting wetter the longer that I stayed out here, so I hastily walked back to the car. Throwing it into gear, I stepped on the accelerator 
and I made my way down to the cabin, feeling ever so slightly uneasy. The sky was black as char by the time that I had reached the cabin, but the moon cast just enough light to see the surrounding area, painting an eerie glow over everything in sight. I was in a clearing surrounded by tall pine trees with branches that swayed in the wind. It looked like they were waving at me, but not in a very welcoming fashion. I parked the car just in front of the cabin and hurried to the door, bringing my bag with me. I unlocked it and stepped inside. It was dark inside the house. I was going to have to hook up the generator tomorrow to get the lights working. But for now, I used my phone's flashlight to guide me upstairs to the bedroom, changed out of my wet clothing, and laid down on the bed. It took me a long time to finally fall asleep. The rain hadn't eased off the slightest since yesterday, so I was stuck indoors. I spent most of the day exploring the cabin, which had a pretty simple layout. The ground floor had a living room with two leather couches and a log fire between them. Across from it was the kitchen, which luckily had running water. Upstairs was the bedroom that I slept in last night, a bathroom, and a small additional room which I assumed was for storage. I happened to be in that room now, slumped against the wall playing games on my phone to pass the time, miserable that my plans of exploring the great outdoors were ruined. I also couldn't figure out how to start up the generator, so the house had no electricity, which meant no lights. I admit, I lost track of time and hours later, I realized it was almost midnight. I hauled myself up, and upon turning the flash on my phone on, I saw something that I hadn't noticed before. A scrunched up piece of paper pushed into the corner of the room near the doorway. I picked it up and I smoothed it out, squinting to read the hastily scrawled message. When the visitor comes, don't let it in. My feeling of unease grew as I remembered the warning I had encountered on the sign yesterday. Could it possibly be related to this? Who on earth was the visitor? As if to answer my question, something started knocking on the front door. If I was uneasy before, now I was completely creeped out. Rather than go to the door, I quietly made my way to the bedroom, which faced the front of the house and tiptoed to the window. I couldn't see the doorstep, so I held my breath and I slowly opened it, craning my neck to see who it was. Through the darkness, I could see the silhouette of someone standing by the door. Whoever they were, they didn't look really tall or threatening. The cabin wasn't far off the road. Perhaps their car had broken down or something and they needed help. 
Still, I wasn't taking any chances. So I grabbed the curtain rail from the top of the window and pulled it down to use as a potential weapon. Quietly, I walked down the stairs to the front door and looked through the people. I breathed a sigh of relief when I saw who it was. An old, harmless-looking woman. Hello, she called out. Anyone home? I turned the key and opened the door. Seeing her properly for the first time, she was definitely old, probably in her 60s. What in the world was she doing out here in the middle of the night? Hey, I said. Is everything okay? Well, you see... Her voice faltered as she noticed the curtain rail in my hand. I hastily propped it up against the wall and she resumed talking. You see, I'm ever so slightly lost. I was out picking berries and I strayed from my usual way. And then it got dark and I've been wandering around for hours now. What was I supposed to do? Tell her to go away just because I saw some creeping out which was most likely just a prank. Make her wander around for another few hours in the dark while there is a freaking thunderstorm going on. She was obviously harmless, so I let her in. Luckily, she insisted on sleeping on the couch and promised to leave first thing in the morning, which was fine by me. Now, I was back upstairs, laying on the bed while tossing and turning restlessly. I couldn't stop thinking about that note that I had found. In the end, I figured since I wasn't sleeping anytime soon, I may as well do something. I grabbed my phone and I opened Google. Here goes nothing, I muttered as I keyed in the visitor and pressed search. Unsurprisingly, Nothing relevant showed up. Not to be deterred, I began delving deeper, typing in more specific searches. Eventually, I came across an article of some obscure wiki, which was supposedly about urban legends and unexplained events. It looked promising, so I opened the page, and I began reading. The Visitor is a shape-shifting entity that originates from an old Finnish folktale, which dates back hundreds of years, yet many people believe its existence to be real. Several people have even claimed to have witnessed it firsthand. Sources provided below. I skipped several transcripts of interviews and I continued reading. According to tradition, the visitor has a weakness. It cannot enter any dwelling or structure unless it is given permission. However, the visitor is cunning. Being a shapeshifter, it will assume the form of something else. Typically, the least intimidating thing it can think of in a bid to gain entry. Once it's inside, it will usually wait until its victim or victims are asleep or at the very least until nightfall, as it is powerless during the day. Then, it will then revert back to its true form and attack them in an extremely brutal fashion. 
Immediately, my thoughts went to the old woman I had invited inside. I began shaking. My blood turned to ice, and my heart started pounding in my chest once I had realized what I had done. I had just let the visitor in, and now I could hear the stairs creaking. Adrenaline pumped through my veins as I frantically grabbed my keys and rushed to the window, throwing it open. I leapt outside and hit the ground hard. Seconds later, I heard the window explode as shards of glass rained down on my back. Winded and bleeding, I staggered over to the car and I leapt inside, turning the key in the ignition. Just as I had slammed my foot on the accelerator, I heard a massive thud behind me. Whatever the visitor's true form looked like, it was big. Heart pounding, I sped down the road as it gave chase, emitting loud, deep growls. I glanced at the rearview mirror and saw the abomination for the first time. It was a hellish being, huge and skeletal with a grinning skull-like face. It was humanoid but dropped down on all fours as it continued to chase me. It was fast, although apparently not fast enough to catch up to a car going nearly 100 miles per hour. I watched it through the mirror as the terrifying bees began getting smaller and smaller. At that moment, I really believed I was going to get away. And then I lost control of the car. It violently wobbled from side to side as I wrestled with the wheel trying to get it under control. I coughed as I started to inhale the smell of burning rubber as the car began screeching to a halt. I realized at that moment that I must have punctured a tire. I desperately tried to get the car to move, but it was no use. There was nothing I could do. Sobbing and shaking, I held my head in my hands and I waited for it all to end. Minutes passed, yet nothing happened. I looked up and a wave of relief hit me as a police officer walked towards my car. He was holding a flashlight and had what looked like a gun holstered on his head. It's okay, he called out. I've taken care of it. You can come out now. I was about to open the door, but hesitated. I wasn't buying it. Why was an officer out here in the first place? Why hadn't I heard gunshots or the sound of a struggle? Sir, called the officer sharply. I need you to exit the vehicle immediately for your own safety. I slammed the horn of the car to drown out his voice. The visitor had tricked me once and it wasn't going to fool me again. The supposed police officer pulled out his gun, pointing it at me and yelling that he would shoot if I didn't open the door. I ignored him. It was all an illusion so long as I didn't let it in or leave the car. I was safe. Eventually, the visitor gave up and transformed back to its true form. I stared at its grotesque face, unable to look away. Its skin was stretched tightly over its skull, and it had a grinning, serrated smile. However, 
When I looked into its smoldering eyes, I saw undisguised rage. It stared me down for what seemed like eternity before turning and disappearing into the night. Head spinning, I slumped back into the seat, struggling to comprehend what had transpired in the past 24 hours. Eventually, I fell asleep or passed out. I wasn't entirely sure, but by the time that I was awake, it was midday. I changed the tire as quickly as I possibly could and I drove away, leaving the nightmare that was the last few days behind me. I became a bus driver for a local school. I found a list of rules to follow when on the road. Written by J.D. Creeper I recently graduated from a CDL school and decided to get a job relating to my field. After applying to every job that involved driving larger vehicles that I could find, I got a reply about an hour later for a bus driver position at Fredrickson High School. The message read, Hello, George. We have reviewed your application and have decided that you would be perfect for our position. Your first day will start tomorrow. Your bus's number is 458, and it is located at a bus yard on 207 Riverside Street. You can arrive at the bus yard at any time, but please arrive at the school before 4 a.m. This is when these students get dismissed. Once these students enter the bus, you can deliver them to their five stops on Old Military Road. Ernest Fredrickson, principal of Fredrickson High School. I was a bit confused on why there was no interview, but nevertheless, I took the job anyway. Not wanting to look at what I thought was a gifted horse in the mouth. I also thought that it was weird that these school hours took place during the night. But I assumed that the school operated at 24 hours a day. Dividing students and teachers into four groups for each shift to follow social distancing guidelines or just for efficiency in general. At around 3.15am, I got into my rusty 1974 Ford F-250 and drove to the address listed in the message. It wasn't that far away, about a 15 minute drive. I arrived at a vehicle gate next to a guard shack. The bus yard consisted of a flat slab of dirt with several buses parked at the back, with a large space in the front to allow for maneuvering the buses into the spots. Surrounding the yard was a fence, with the aforementioned gate and shack replacing a part of the fence. The guard in the shack was startled by my arrival, and proceeded to open the window slightly. Who, who are you? he asked. Uh, hello, I replied. I'm George Redwood. I'm here for bus 458. Are you okay? He picked up a piece of paper, looking at it briefly before putting it down. He then passed me a key I presumed was for my bus. Okay, sir, here's your key. Uh, find your bus and, and replace its parking spot with your truck. Then you can go. The gate then opened and I did as he had asked. I drove my truck through the gate, got out to find my bus and then drove my bus to the front of the yard and I parked it in a corner. 
I then walked back to my truck and parked it in my bus's original spot, before going back to my bus and driving it back to the gate. My bus was one of those buses with the flat front, the engine in the back, and it had the driver in front of the front wheels. I don't know what the official name of this design is. I noticed that the bus I was given had many dents and scratches, mostly on the front bumper. But I didn't think much of it and I started my shift anyway. I arrived at the school at 3.47am. I noticed that there was only one bus for the school, that being mine. This school was very small so it made sense why there was only one bus. While I waited for the students to be dismissed, I found a list of rules along with a map and the gap between the steering wheel and the windshield. Rules for Fredrickson High School Busing You must follow these rules in driving on old military road. We cannot ensure your safety if you break any of these rules. 1. Do not use any electronic devices for navigation. They will try to deceive you. We printed out a map for you to follow. 2. The bus stops that you can drop kids off at are labeled as 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. These stops resemble a bench with three walls with a roof, with the opening being on the front. The bus stop's number will be on both sides of all three walls. If you stop at a bus stop that is not one of the above, leave the stop immediately and continue your journey. Try not to look at anything nearby a fake stop, besides checking a wall to see if it's a valid stop. 3. The road is supposed to be very old, windy, and unmaintained. If the road suddenly changes to a straight road that appears to be newly paved, and the scenery starts repeating, immediately slam on the brakes and turn around before it's too late. Once the road starts curving again, and the straight part is no longer visible, you can turn around and continue your journey. If turning around is not possible, Shift the bus into reverse and drive until you either find a place to turn around or the road returns to normal. 4. If the road reaches a dead end, turn around or reverse until the end of the road is no longer visible, similar to Rule 3. 5. If the road merges with another road, remember which side you came from. This will be important if you have to turn around. Do not drive on the road that you did not come from. 6. If any other vehicles appear in the road, disable them by any means possible. I don't care about minor damage to the bus. You can easily bash through any cars or light trucks, but be careful around larger vehicles that could put up a fight. Do not drop off any students if your bus is currently being perused by any vehicles. Or you disabled one recently and it crashed near a bus stop. 7. If your bus gets stuck for whatever reason, alert the students and they'll know what to do. There is a handgun in the glove compartment near the steering wheel. Use it to defend the bus if they attempt to get in. Wait in the bus until dawn, and then contact us to get you out of there. No pay will be deducted if this happens. 8. If you hear a church bell, avoid going towards the source. If it's behind you, you're good. If it's on your side or in front of you, turn around and get as far away as you can until the ringing stops. 
Once you can no longer hear the bell, you can turn around and continue your journey. This usually doesn't last long. 9. If you see a creature on your right running parallel to your bus, do not, under any circumstances, open any doors or windows. While it will always run at the speed of your bus, you can confuse it by constantly accelerating and decelerating. Doing that may allow you to get into a position in which you can run it over. This is the only known way to stop it. 10. If the engine stops for seemingly no reason, immediately start it up again and floor it. Do not look at what is behind the bus. If that doesn't work, refer to Rule 7 for everyone's safety. 11. If you see a human on the road, run it over, even if it resembles a loved one. It's not a human. If you fail to run it over, skip any remaining stops and return to the bus yard as quickly as possible. Do not, under any circumstances, open any doors or windows. If you have to turn around for whatever reason, do so as quickly as possible. Despite the fact that you likely won't see it again, it is still following you. Once you arrive at the bus yard, alert the guard. They'll know what to do. 12. If you see a mansion in the distance, turn off all lights and floor it. None of our students live here. Its position on the road changes often, sometimes not appearing at all. The owners are deaf, but they can still see. The part of the road directly in front of the mansion is straight, and you can turn your lights back on once you're surrounded by forest again, so you'll be fine. This mansion is at least twice as tall as the forest, and it emits light from the room, so if you pay attention, you can spot it from far enough away that you can turn off your high beams and headlights before they notice the light. If you see a ridiculously bright light behind you, they saw you. If this happens, put on the modified sunglasses in the glove compartment and get out of there as quickly as you can. The students are prepared with similar sunglasses to prevent being blinded by this light, so don't worry about them. If you are forced to turn around for whatever reason, do so as quickly as possible. Do not drop any students off when the owners are chasing you, and return to the bus yard if necessary. When the light disappears and you've lost them, you can continue your journey. Keep all doors and windows closed during this time. 13. The true end of this road merges with a larger road and a three-way stop. If any students are still on the bus once you've passed all five stops, go back to the front of the road and try again. Keep doing this until all students have reached their stops, or if you get too tired to continue... I was very confused on what to think of this. Sure, it sounds impossible, but as a long-time lurker of this subreddit, I know that I should take these rules seriously. Nevertheless, I continue waiting for the students to be dismissed and I came up with a plan. I will follow the rules unless they could potentially harm someone if they are fake, such as the vehicle ramming. If I can prove a rule to be true without breaking any of them, I will assume that they are all real and I'll follow them all. At 4am, these students exited the school and got on my bus. I estimated that 20 students entered the bus. 
about 80% capacity under the social distancing guidelines. And despite the situation, most of the students were very chill, as if they had been going to the school for so long that this didn't scare them anymore. Once all the students had entered the bus, I closed the door and I got on the road. The road was a two-lane, winding road through a forest. Though it was paved, it looked like it hadn't been maintained for decades, with the potholes poorly patched with tar. The pothole fillings looked like chunks of the first world Lightning McQueen paved in cars. Roads like this are nothing unusual here in upstate New York. The first 10 minutes were uneventful, and I dropped off three students at stop on with no complications. That was until I heard a student scream. They're here. I looked in the left near and sure enough, I saw a pair of headlights in the distance. Rule number six. If any other vehicles appear in the road, disable them by any means possible. I accelerated the bus, but the pair of headlights accelerated faster. It caught up to me in a matter of seconds and it started tailgating me. It got so close that the headlights were no longer visible from the rear window, but I still knew it was back there. What is happening? I yelled to the students, even though I knew exactly what was going on. I was still hoping that this was all a joke. Several students replied at once, but I couldn't decipher what any of them were saying. Should I brake check the vehicle? Every student replied, yes, and so I did. I slammed on the brakes, causing my bus to come to a halt within seconds. I heard tires screeching coming from both vehicles shortly followed by a loud crunch from the back of the bus. I then accelerated the bus, looking out the rear window to see the vehicle behind me had stopped chasing me. That collision at that speed must have broken something important under the hood, as we were going 60 plus at the time of the collision. About a minute later, I arrived at stop two. Two students got up, a boy and a girl, so I assumed I was far enough away from the other vehicle to drop them off. I opened the doors and they were about to step off until we noticed our mistake. That wasn't stop two. It was stop Z. Rule number two. The bus stops that you can drop kids off at are labeled 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. If you stop at a bus stop that is not one of the above, leave the stop immediately and continue your journey. I immediately sped off closing the doors while the bus was already moving. The two students were still at the front of the bus, grabbing the railing to avoid falling due to the dramatic acceleration. Not even a second after I had closed the doors, I heard a demonic screeching from my right. Driver, look! One of the students yelled. She was pointing at the doors, revealing that something had managed to get a part of itself wedged between the doors. As I had to focus on the road... I didn't have much time to look at it, but I was still able to catch a glimpse of whatever she was pointing at. It looked like an arm of a massive gingerbread man, except it reflected no light. I could hear whatever that arm was attached to being dragged across the asphalt, sounding like a mix of wood and metal. I briefly opened the doors, causing the creature to lose its grip and fall to the ground. What the heck was that? I asked the students who were still on the staircase. I don't know, 
replied the female student. I've seen that thing a few times. The fake bus stop is fairly uncommon. It usually happens at least once a month. But the creatures usually don't get to the bus in time anyway. The male student returned to his seat. This event somehow made me come up with a question for the female student. Actually, how long have you been here? I've lived here since I was a baby. Every house here has its own set of weird rules, but it's all my family could afford. So we've been living together ever since. Oh, and what's your name? She added. George, and you? Angela. Oh, okay. Would you mind staying up here so we can... This is the police. Stop your vehicle immediately. A masculine voice yelled through a megaphone. The voice sounded like a pathetic attempt to be a human. It sounded like the sentence was put through a text-to-speech software and blasted out of a megaphone. I was so into my conversation with Angela that I was completely oblivious to the police cruiser in the left lane. The other students were also distracted by us, so they were unable to warn me like they did last time. I slowed down my bus, causing the cruiser to start passing me, intending to do a pit maneuver once it was in position. But what I saw in the cab will haunt me forever. The two creatures inside were vaguely humanoid, enough for them to operate a motor vehicle designed for humans. They looked like the creature from Venom, but covered in bluish-black scales, as if they were reptiles. The one in the passenger seat turned its head 90 degrees to look at me, without moving anything below its neck. Its eyes were thin, vertical lines, stretching from the top of the mouth to the top of the forehead, like the eyes of these stick people from the Henry Stickman collection, except they admitted a white light for them, like Carol Bryan from Minecraft. The two of us stared at each other for what felt like forever. I was not concerned about the fact that I wasn't paying attention to the road. I somehow completely forgot I was driving a bus. I even forgot that I existed altogether. The entire concept of anything I was looking at vanished from my mind as if I was in the latest stages of dementia. All I knew was the bright light emitting from the creature's eyes. After an unmeasurable amount of time, we broke eye contact with the cruiser and got stuck between a rock and a school bus. I immediately regained the concept of existence and realized what was going on. The bus had been going in a straight line, but the road wasn't straight, and the bus had been veering into the left lane this whole time until the bus was pushing the cruiser against the cliff on the left. This caused the cruiser to come to a halt almost instantly. I immediately got back into my lane to avoid meeting a similar fate to the cruiser. You're finally back! Angela screamed inches from my face. She got down and cried on the floor while repeating the same sentence multiple times through sobs. How long was I staring at that thing? I asked her. She just cried harder. Oh, okay. I said awkwardly. Um, there's a tissue box between the dashboard and the windshield. You should probably take off your mask until you're done crying. I wanted to comfort her, but I had no idea what I was supposed to do in this situation. So I just let her cry on the floor while resting against my right leg.
This usually works for me when I'm having a breakdown, but I have no idea how neurotypical brains work, or if Angela is neurotypical in the first place. Less than a minute after the crash, I arrived at stop number three. Two students got up to exit, so Angela got out of the way so they could get off at the stop and begin their trek down the ominous path beside it. As I left the stop, Angela answered my question from earlier. You were looking at that thing for like five minutes, she said, and you were so stiff that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't access the brakes. I could barely move the steering wheel. At least your foot wasn't on the, uh, the diesel. I laughed. I just call it the accelerator, which is stupider, calling a liquid fuel gas or calling the accelerator the gas. I guess we should pay attention to what's going on around us so something doesn't sneak up on us like last time. Uh, good idea. Well, I'm going back to my seat so I don't get yeeted through the windshield. But if you need any help or have any more questions for me, just call me and I'll come right back up here. Alright. Minutes later, I heard clunky noises from the back of the bus. Before any of us could comprehend what was going on, the engine stopped. Rule 10. If the engine stops for seemingly no reason, immediately start it up again and floor it. Do not look at what is behind the bus. If that doesn't work, refer to Rule 7 for everyone's safety. I desperately tried to start the engine, but it was no use. The bus was still gliding down the road because of inertia, but I could barely move the steering wheel. Power steering was disabled when the engine turned off. The road was still relatively straight, enough for me to stand the road with my very limited steering. But if I encountered a curve, I would have to stop the bus and execute Rule 7. The rules implied something behind the bus and managed to turn off the engine. And that's when I noticed a pair of headlights suddenly appeared behind me. The unseen vehicle went into the left lane and accelerated until it was beside me. It was the cruiser from earlier. Those guys had turned off their lights and followed my taillights to navigate the road. I immediately stopped looking at it to avoid it being hypnotized again. After holding down the starter for about 10 seconds, the engine finally came back to life and I floored it. The cruiser noticed this and accelerated. Now that I've got my powered steering back, I blindly swerved into the left lane while staring directly ahead. I heard a loud crunch from my left. I looked into my left mirror and saw that the cruiser was no longer following me. The entire chassis was bent with the corner of my bus collided with the back right door. The things attempted to hypnotize me through the mirror, but they were too far away at this point to affect me. Seconds after the crash, I saw stop 4 on the right, but skipped it because the cruiser was way too close to it. The hill was still on the left, but the area on the right was flat enough to fit a few houses. These houses were fairly large, probably about 2,500 square feet on the top two floors, and an unknown amount of space underground if they had basements. I remember stop 1 and 3 didn't have any houses visible from the bus stop, so this was the first time I got to see the houses. As I passed the houses, I decided to ask a few questions to the residents. Can someone who lives at stop 4 come up here for a moment? I have questions about the houses.
a boy from the seat behind me came up. Now, how much does it actually cost to live here? I... But before I could say anything else, I saw an old man with a cane slowly cross the road. Rule 11. If you see a human on the road, run it over, even if it resembles a loved one. It is not a human. I already had enough faith in the rules at this point to know that it was not a human. But the screeching he made when I ran him over further enforced it. After a short pause, the boy answered my question. Uh, 50 bucks a month, for me at least. And yes, we have rules just as weird and terrifying as the ones in here. Oh, wow. It's not as much of a bargain as it sounds. Anyone who lives here is either extremely poor or is oblivious to what they are getting themselves into. Most of the cost is paid with the mental and sometimes physical trauma that comes with living here. Yeah, I've heard the stories about places like this. and Definitely not worth it. I doubt you could report any of this to the police or some other authority. My family actually did have to call 911 once. We told the operator that some dude with a gun was in our house. Nobody believes the officers that showed up in Forest Fred, the creature that terrorizes the residents at Stop 4, to retreat back to the forest. Maybe we could tell you our story sometime. Yeah, maybe. I'm going back to my seat now. My name's Tommy, by the way. Nice meeting you, Tommy. I would like to hear your stories about your life here sometime. And Tommy was about to return to his seat when he noticed something. Oh crap, rule nine, he yelled. Rule nine. If you see a creature on your right running parallel to your bus, do not, under any circumstances, open any doors or windows. While it will always run at the speed of your bus, you can confuse it by constantly accelerating and decelerating. Doing that may allow you to get into a position in which you can run it over. This is the only known way to stop it. I looked to the right and I saw it. Running beside the bus doors was a creature running on all fours. It was like a brute version of the creatures in the cruiser. Its arms and legs were nearly identical, and it was running like a horse. The bus was going 40 miles per hour at this point, a very appropriate speed for this road. I sped up, but so did it. Tommy quickly ran back to his seat as the bus was starting to become unstable as I drove way too fast for this road. Now at over 80 miles per hour, the thing was still beside the door, and it had been since I had spotted it. I slowed down, but the creature didn't decelerate as quickly. Now at 60 miles per hour, I aimed the bus right at it and ran it over as the creature attempted to slow down. And before I could celebrate... I saw a pair of taillights ahead. The taillights brightened as the vehicle slowed down. They saw me. And this wasn't anything small, either. It was a semi-truck. The truck slowed all the way down to 20 miles per hour, forcing me to do the same. I knew the driver was planning something, but I still had no idea what was going on. My questions were soon answered, as a bright light was reflected off the left mirror darting around the front of the bus, looking for my eyes. But with the 40-foot trailer behind the truck, this made the precision required for hypnosis incredibly difficult. 
It quickly realized this wasn't going to work and it stopped. As I followed the truck, we brainstormed ideas on how to defeat the thing. Even citing past experiences with large vehicles like this one. But to my right, above the forest, I saw something unnatural. The mansion. It was at least two floors taller than the forest. It was also very large horizontally as well. I didn't know how to describe the building other than saying it reminded me of a woodland mansion from Minecraft, with the way that it was surrounded by the forest and the dimensions. The mansion gave me an idea. Hey guys, are the mansion owners allied with the creature driving the truck? I don't think so, replied Angela. I really see them interacting if they do. It's usually hostile, though they're not as aggressive as they are to us. Oh, good. You're going to make the mansion owners attack the truck, aren't you? I heard Tommy say. Exactly. Well, just get as far away from the truck as you can so they don't see you too, replied Tommy. Alright. I turned off my lights once we were about 500 feet away from the mansion. The truck driver looked back at us through the mirror for a few seconds. The light illuminated the cab. As if the driver was trying to say, I know you're still back there, you idiot. As we slowly approached the mansion, I let the bus slow down so I could gain some distance from the truck. I didn't touch the air brakes to avoid being hurt by the truck driver. It may have known I was still behind it, but it didn't know how far away I was. Once I was about 200 feet away, the bus was down to 2 miles per hour. I pulled the parking brake, causing the bus to come to a halt silently. The truck was oblivious to what I was doing and it was still going forward, very slowly for some reason. It seemed that it was trying to stall me until reinforcements arrived. We all got our sunglasses to protect our eyes from what was about to happen, ready to put them on at any moment. The moment the truck's light struck the road in front of the mansion, it happened. For the split second, I saw the light at full force. My vision was already being obstructed by spots, as if I had been staring at the sun for several minutes. Even with the sunglasses, it still bothered my eyes to look at it. The light swarmed the truck like bees that had their hive disturbed. While the owners were distracted, I put the bus into reverse and I floored it. The sound of the engine got the attention of the truck driver, but it wasn't able to turn around or reverse very quickly due to the trailer. So, it ended up having to go forward to flee the owners. Now that the truck was gone, I went back into drive and continued down the road, though not very quickly to not catch up with the truck. I slowed down even more so I could get a better look at the now vacant building. The front of the mansion had wooden walls with a concrete base. There is a hole in the front with many equally sized rooms, with one window across the walls. Each room was illuminated by light bulbs on the chandelier. The rooms had a wide variety of contents, some looked natural, some looked weird, and some were disturbing. One room looked like a kitchen, one like a bedroom. One was almost completely filled with a pile of wires. One was a prison cell, one had tens of black cats inside, and one had a floor covered in spikes with doll heads on them.
How original. The room full of cats caused me to stop the bus. Why is there a room full of cats? I asked the students. A room full of what? They have cats. Tommy replied, who was in the seat directly behind me. I don't think we've ever gotten a good look at the mansion before. This is the first time someone managed to distract the owners. Another student replied. I pulled the parking brake and I got out of my seat. I want to investigate the cat room. I told the students. Go to the window but don't enter the mansion. Just don't. The same student from earlier had replied. And park the bus right next to the window. Angela added. Wait, hold on. What is your name? I asked the anonymous student. Oh, I'm Joseph. Alright, good to know. I then did what Joseph said. I positioned the bus so that the doors were right next to the window of the cat room. I got out and I peered into the room. Cats everywhere, very malnourished and the smell was rough. There was an island literally made of crap in the center. Definitely not okay. I grabbed a rock and I smashed the window several times before the window split in half. I could have used the gun but I didn't want to waste any bullets or attract any unwanted attention. Tommy, Angela, and two other students came out to help. Once the glass pane had split, we kept hitting it in a concentrated spot until we had created a hole large enough for the cats to get through. As soon as we had pointed this out to them, the cats rushed out to freedom. Whatever they were going to get themselves into in this forest was a better fate than whatever the owners were doing with them in there. The wire room was one room away from the cat room, with the prison cell in between the two. I walked over to investigate. I probably could get a few thousand bucks for all that copper. I pointed out to the students. Will we get any of it? Tommy asked. I'll give you each some for helping me retrieve it. But I'll take most of it as compensation for what I had to put up with today. Twenty dollars an hour isn't cutting it. I also had the rest of the students come out to help me with stealing the wire. Promising a small portion of what I'm going to get for them. I broke the window with the rock and made a small hole the size of a fist. You know, it would be a lot easier if someone goes inside the mansion and... No! Every student replied at once. Okay, never mind then. We continued bashing the window until the hole was big enough to climb through. We managed to load all the wires into the bus before the owners returned. Even if they did return before they were done, we had already set up a place to hide. The students then organized the wire once we were already on the road. As I was about to arrive at stop 5, I saw the owners returning from their mission. I quickly put on my sunglasses as I floored the bus and blindly drove through the light. However, the owners were not interested in me, and they continued their journey home. It seems that the enemy attacked those who disturbed them, and somehow driving by their mansion does that. They still had no idea that I'd freed their cats and stole their wire, and even when they find out, they'll have no idea who did it. I arrived at stop five a minute later, and dismissed Joseph and four other students. This bus stop was similar to stop four, with very similar houses as well. I still had seven students in the bus as I skipped stop two and four, 
I knew what I had to do. Rule 13. The true end of this road merges with a larger road at a three-way stop. If any students are still on the bus once you've passed all five stops, go back to the front of the road and try again. Keep doing this until all students have reached their stops, or if you get too tired to continue. I sighed as I left the stop. You know you're going to have to drive down this road again, right? Tommy asked. Yeah, I know. Hey, at least this time you'll be more prepared. And you know that there's a fake bus stop between stops 1 and 2. And you know that the mansion is between stops 4 and 5. This doesn't refresh every time you go down the road. Unlike the Rule 3 road and the dead end. Alright, I'll go back and do another round. As I continued down the road, I found the semi-truck or what was left of it. I parked the bus next to the truck to get a better look at it. The truck seemed to have crashed straight into a tree instead of turning for the curve. The trailer's walls were partially melted, causing the roof to collapse onto the burning wooden crates inside. The body of the truck was completely destroyed, with only the chassis and engine block still being recognizable. In the melting remains of the cab, I saw the charred skeleton of the driver. It's terrifying to think that could have been me. Holy crap, a student muttered. Tommy and I got out of the bus and walked to the side of the truck to further investigate what the heck had happened here. Looking at the vague remains of the truck, I determined that the skeleton was in the bed at the back of the cab. I theorized that the owner's blinding lights caused the driver to be unable to see the road and was therefore unaware of the curve. After the crash, the driver hid in the back of the truck in the fetal position as the owners brightened their lights to the point that the heat literally melted the steel body of the truck. This combined with the fuel tanks that were set on fire burned the driver to the point where it was just a skeleton. Are we looting this one too? Tommy asked. I don't think there's anything valuable that's still intact. I'm just investigating what the heck happened here. Look man, I'm just as horrified as you are. I've heard of disappearances relating to the mansion owners, but I've never seen what happened to them. The rules were just updated accordingly. We returned to the bus and continued down the road. I found the end of the road and made a left turn onto Route 3, intending to go back to the beginning of Old Military Road. Not long after I got on the road, I heard a student scream. What the... She was interrupted by her own choking. George, stop the bus now, Tommy instructed, as if I wasn't already doing that. I got out of my seat and looked back to see several students fighting a wire that was strangling the student. The wires had come to life and were crawling around like snakes. We evacuated the bus and I locked the doors hoping that they couldn't unlock them. Once we were outside, I freed the student from the wire that was choking her. I then inspected that wire and saw the copper bending and contorting on its own. The wires were fiddling around in the driver's seat, but they couldn't start the bus because I had the keys. Now what? A student asked. I could call 911, I replied. Man, what are you going to tell them? That we're being attacked by copper snakes? Tommy asked rhetorically. I paused for a moment before I had an idea. 
I dialed 911. 911, what's your emergency? Mom, there are these snake things on my bus. I managed to trap them all inside, but I can't get rid of them. And what's your address, sir? I'm on Route 3 near the spot where Old Military Road merges onto the highway. Okay, sir, we have sent animal control to deal with the situation. Can you stay on the line for me? Yeah, I can do. I was interrupted by the engine roaring to life. How? Sir, what is going on? The bus accelerated and drove into a guardrail on the side of the road at an angle, and was pushed back onto the road by the guardrail. The bus continued accelerating as fast as it could, while scraping against the guardrail to guide it down the highway. I... what? The snakes just hijacked the bus. Tommy spoke for me. The operator tried her best to stay professional, but she couldn't avoid letting out a chuckle about how ridiculous this situation was. Okay, we're going to deal with that as well. What direction is the bus going? It's going east, but is scraping against the guardrail to guide it down the road. Alright sir, we've dispatched several units to close the road until the runaway vehicle is stopped. Do you need a ride? Yes ma'am, but there's eight of us. I'm a school bus driver. That's fine. We can dispatch three units to take you to your destination. Oh, okay, thank you. You're welcome, sir. A few minutes later, three police cars arrived. I told the officers to take us back to the bus yard. As we drove down the highway, we found the bus. The wires had figured out how to use the steering wheel, but still had no idea what they were doing. They were swerving all over the road attempting to not scrape against the guardrail. I don't think they had any other perception of reality outside of touch. Multiple police cruisers and even a SWAT truck were chasing the bus at this point. It seemed that police from nearby towns were called in to help with this pursuit. Once we had passed the bus, the officer in the vehicle I was in interviewed me as we traveled to our destination. Sir, how did these snakes get into your bus? I was at a bus stop when they somehow snuck in and tried to choke out one of my students and we had to evacuate the bus so I could free the student from the snake that was strangling her. I partially lied. Why did you and your students evacuate the bus? Well, I didn't want to be attacked by the snakes as I fought the snake that was strangling one of my students. There were like 50 of them, so if I stayed in there, all of us probably would have been strangled to death. We arrived at the bus yard a few minutes later. I thanked the officers and I went to the guard. The officers then turned around and drove back to help pursue the bus. Hey guard, it's me again. The guard paused whatever he was doing on his phone and he studied me for a moment. Oh, hey George, where's the bus? Oh, it was stolen by copper snakes. Yeah, of course they did. These jobs are weird as heck. Wait, you too? Yeah, come in, I want to show you something. The guard unlocked the thick steel door and invited us in. The shack had a desk against the back wall and an office chair facing the table, while also being next to the window on the wall to its left. Above the desk was a wall of six monitors on the back wall, each displaying the input of a camera somewhere in the yard. The desk had a laptop on it in front of two of the monitors, though those monitors can be seen if the laptop is closed. The shack was large enough for all of us to fit inside, 
though it was still a bit cramped. He picked up the paper I saw him look at when I first got here. Rules for Frederickson Bus Yard Guarding You must follow these rules when guarding the bus yard. We cannot ensure your safety if you break any of these rules. 1. Only the following people are permitted to enter the bus yard. Ernest Frederickson Anna Evergreen Harry Williams George Redwood If someone arrives that identifies as someone not on this list... Hold them at gunpoint until they leave or you have to shoot them to defend yourself. 2. If a bus or other vehicle in the yard starts its engine for no reason, close the metal shades on the window and wait until it turns off. It may attempt to accelerate, but all buses and vehicles should be in park, so this won't work. Do not, under any circumstances, make your presence known until the engine stops. 3. If one of the monitors starts showing static, smash it with a crowbar that we provided for you if possible. If you are currently experiencing Rule 2 at the same time, unplug the power strip all the monitors are powered by and get as far away from the monitor as you can without exiting the shack. Keep track of which monitor was showing static earlier, such as putting a sticky note on it. Once Rule 2 ends, smash the monitor before turning the rest of them back on. 4. At any time a man may show up thinking your shack is a snack bar, give him something to eat or you'll be the snack. If you cannot give him a snack due to rule 2, call us and continue hiding until we've dealt with the situation. 5. If the sun turns red, don't look at the sky for a prolonged period of time. You won't die, but the red sun will literally destroy your retinas if you look at it for more than a few seconds. The same may happen if you look at the sky, though it'll take a little longer. Both of these are safe to look at through a camera, and pictures taken of the sky or sun cannot harm you, but they can damage the camera similar to how they can damage your eyes. 6. Don't sleep on the job, just don't. If you get too tired to continue your shift, Alert us and we'll send someone to take your shaft. Only leave once your replacement has arrived. Do not trust your peripheral vision if this happens. 7. If you see a shadow figure roaming the nearby area, pretend that it doesn't exist. Do not let it know it has physically entered our world. 8. At around 3am, your mother may show up and ask you about your job. She'll look like she does in the present, but if she's dead, she'll look like she did shortly before her death. If you're adopted, your biological mother will show up and act like she knows you. If this happens, pretend you don't know her and tell her to get out. After I read it, the students took turns reading the rules for themselves. As we were doing this, my bus showed up. It took a while to get it here as it kept hitting those things along the way. The bus was still being chased by several police cruisers and the SWAT truck. We got out of the shack and watched as the wires completely ignored the nearby curve and drove into a tree. They then turned the steering wheel as far right as it could go, before reversing into the same tree again. The bus accelerated forward, swerving all over the place as it drove across the road and right through the fence, only stopping when it struck one of the buses. The wires paused for a moment before they were about to continue their reckless journey. 
However, the hood was still open from when the engine was disabled by the creatures from Old Military Road. So, one of the officers pulled out a shotgun and shot the engine repeatedly. The most American thing I've ever seen. This actually worked as one of the bullets sliced the serpentine belt, causing the bus to lose several important functions. The wires reversed back onto the road in a straight line, as they no longer had powered steering. It continued driving, but it couldn't do much due to the lack of powered steering, and the engine eventually overheated and stopped right before it struck that same tree again, this time causing it to fall over and collapse onto the roof of the bus. As the wires were trying to figure out what was going on, the officers investigated the bus. The guard, the students, and I got closer now that the bus could no longer run us over. The officer that had interviewed me earlier saw us approach the bus. You call these things snakes? He asked me rhetorically. If I told you my bus was stolen by giant copper worms, you would have not believed me. I replied. Yeah, good point. So now what? I don't know, they seem stuck in there, so we might just leave them in there and tow the bus. I was about to reply when the officer's radio received a message. Philip, an armored truck got on the road and is going westbound towards your location. Sarah, weren't you blocking one of the entrances to the road? Yeah, but the vehicle drove over my car and got on the road. It's that big. I think it's one of those marauders from that Top Gear episode. The rest of the officers were now gathered around Philip to hear what Sarah was saying. I wasn't in the car though. I was telling the driver why the road was closed when he drove over my car right after I told him why. Alright, copy that. Philip ended the call. Yeah, you know what she said. Use your vehicles and the bus to form a barricade. This won't stop the truck, but it'll delay us long enough to open fire on it. The truck eventually showed up, and it was indeed a black marauder. The marauder was being chased by even more police cars. A police helicopter was hovering far above us now. The car barricade would stand no chance against the marauder. The truck stopped, coming to a halt a few yards from the barricade. Not because the barricade would stop it, but because the driver found what he was looking for. The bus. It was clear that the driver was looking for the wires, implied by how swiftly he got on the road after Sarah informed him why the road was closed. The officers took one look at the vehicle and knew they were screwed. The helicopter descended and hovered next to the marauder, but fled when it started being shot at by a man in the passenger seat. I noticed that it was actually a news helicopter, which explains why it did that. One of the officers called the dispatcher. We're going to need backup. Send in the U.S. military. There's no way we can force the driver to get out. The driver got on the truck's intercom. This is the Red Moth auction hall. One of our clients reported an item stolen. We are here to retrieve it. Another officer grabbed a megaphone from her car to join the amplified shouting match. Sir... That does not justify running over an officer's vehicle and evading the... Yes, it does. You wouldn't understand. While this was happening, a blue 2010s Ford pickup along with a police cruiser escorting it arrived at the bus yard from Riverside Street. The truck drove through the hole created by the bus and stopped beside us. And the officer and the police cruiser went to join whatever was happening at the intersection. 
An old man was inside the truck. Despite his age, he stepped out of the truck with ease. Rough first day, huh? He asked me. The guard and I stared at him in confusion. The students stared at us in confusion, giving us a look that said, Wait, you don't know this guy. After an awkward moment of silence, the man identified himself. Oh, I'm Ernest Fredrickson, the dude who hired you. Sorry about that. Not knowing who this guy was, a million questions went through my head. But before I could ask any of those questions, the driver of the Marauder opened his door to throw grenades at the officers. But he made a fatal mistake. Either he didn't notice us standing 20 feet away or he didn't expect us to intervene. This is when I leapt into action. I grabbed the guard's hand and we ran to the truck. Ernest pulled out his firearm and joined us. The driver noticed us and quickly threw the grenades he already activated in advance, and he tried to close the door. But before he was able to, I managed to get my left wrist stuck between the door and the wall of the truck, stopping the door from being closed. The driver attempted to repeatedly slam the door on my wrist, hoping that I would remove it because of the pain. But I didn't. While this was happening... The guard in earnest opened fire at the driver. About half the bullets struck the door, but the other half managed to get into the cab, and most of those hit the driver. We ripped the door out of the dead man's grip, and I climbed into the truck to unbuckle his seatbelt, so we could remove the body from the seat. But when I climbed under the seat of the truck, I found another man in the passenger seat, with the exact same attire as the driver. That being what seemed to be a black version of what the U.S. Army wears. I noticed that he had a rifle, so I was forced to shoot him to avoid being shot myself. All of this happened in less than 10 seconds. The grenades the driver threw earlier landed behind the barricade and blew up, injuring several officers. Some of these surviving officers tended to the injured ones, while the rest came over to the marauder to inspect it. The three of us returned to the yard where the kids were. Shortly after the officers had entered the Marauder, the back doors opened and eight men rushed out of the truck. They all had the same attire as the two in the front and three of them had briefcases for some reason. Five officers had chased them on foot. We all thought this was the end as none of them had any weapons. Or at least we thought. The one with the briefcases stopped for a moment and threw their briefcases at the officers. One of them had managed to strike an officer, knocking him to the ground. But the briefcases had another use other than being a projectile. Because as the officers passed them, they were detonated, causing a massive explosion. Chunks of briefcase were flung outward, functioning as shrapnel. One of them hit Tommy, two hit the girl who was being strangled by the wire earlier. One hit Angela, and two more hit each me in earnest. Luckily, we all survived with minor injuries. When the smoke cleared up, we saw the scene that lied before us. The marauder suffered very little damage and the bus's body was heavily damaged but still intact, including the windows. The windshield was struck by four briefcase chunks, leaving spiderweb cracks where they collided with the windshield. The body of the police cars were ripped apart from the force of the explosion, and the fuel tanks were spilling gasoline all over the road. Even the traffic lights at the intersection were bent. Seven ambulances arrived from Riverside Street, intending to treat the officers injured by the grenade explosion, 
but found far more than they had bargained for. But in a dark twist of irony, this was still enough ambulances to transport the surviving officers to the hospital. Out of the eight men in the back of the Marauder, five of them survived with minor injuries. The other three were dead or seriously injured. All seven of the kids hid in the guard shack as the guard Ernest and I approached the group with our weapons drawn. As soon as they saw us, the healthy ones dropped their injured comrades and fled down Route 3 on foot. In the same direction the Marauder came from, the three of us chased them and managed to shoot all five of them. We walked back to the yard and saw a man talking with the paramedics. What do you mean? The snack bar is right there. What do you mean it's not open? Crap, they didn't know. Rule number four. At any time a man may show up thinking your shack is a snack bar, give him something to eat or you'll be the snack. If you cannot give him a snack due to rule two, call us and continue hiding until we've dealt with the situation. We continued approaching the ambulances, but still try not to attract the man's attention. Sir, we're paramedics. We do not have a snack bar. The man went from annoyed to angry. His voice became incredibly deep and demonic. Give me a snack right now. The paramedic stared at the man, very confused at what just happened. The man's fingernails grew incredibly quickly, and they transformed into claws in the process. He used his wolverine hands to attack the man, peeling off a thick and large chunk of his forearm. The paramedic ran off and screamed in agony due to being literally skinned alive. The man's fingernails broke off and the man returned to normal. Thanks, have a nice day. He said as if he'd just bought this chunk of human flesh from a snack bar. He left in the direction he seemed to have come from. Several shadow figures appeared near him and wandered aimlessly. Rule 7. If you see a shadow figure roaming their nearby area, pretend that it doesn't exist. Don't let it know that it has physically entered our world. I walked up to the paramedics to inform them of Rule 7. Luckily, they complied, as they all witnessed what happens if you break Rule 4. The paramedics continued loading the injured officers into the ambulances, with the one that was skinned alive joining them. When a heavy-duty tow truck that was going way too fast for Riverside Street bashed through two of the ambulances that were in its way, while making a sharp right turn into the left lane of Route 3, almost flipping over in the process. This truck was definitely able to tow the bus, and that's exactly what they did. The truck reversed to the bus and two men got out, almost identical to the 10 in the Marauder, and quickly hooked up the bus to the tow cable. The men got back into their truck and sped off in the direction that the truck was facing. This all happened within 15 seconds. The paramedics were about to nope out of there, but the men in the tow truck didn't have time to attack them. Both of the ambulances that were damaged were still drivable. One of the paramedics was injured by the truck's crash, having been ran over by his own ambulance, and had to be transported to the hospital by his co-workers. He is expected to make a full recovery out of these 17 officers that were at this war zone, only 7 survived. All 5 of the officers that were perusing the men were blown to bits due to being so close to the explosion. The 3 officers were inside of the Marauder at the time of the explosion, and they all survived with virtually no injuries. 7 officers were injured by the grenades, 
Out of them, four were declared dead at the scene. Two died on the way to the hospital, and only one survived. She is severely injured, but is expected to make a full recovery. Out of the four officers attending to the injured seven, one died at the scene, one was critically injured, and the other two survived with minor injuries as they were behind the bus at the time. The one that was critically injured is also expected to make a full recovery. I don't know where the other six officers were at the time of the explosion, but they all died at the scene. When interviewed, I told them what happened and explained that I said snakes because they wouldn't believe me if I told them the truth. The only difference is that I said a pile of copper wires was next to a bus stop and they invaded the bus. The students all told the same lie. Ernest, the guard, and the surviving officers backed up my story saying that there were wires in the bus. None of us were charged with anything, and the three of us that raided the Marauder were praised for our bravery. All ten of the men died at the scene. Their bodies couldn't be identified. The Marauder was impounded by the police. Its license plate revealed that the vehicle was registered under the name Alfred Cornell, with the address being resident somewhere in Maine. When the police went to that location, they found an empty lot in a semi-remote location, with nothing on it other than a brick wall that was 20 feet long, 8 feet tall, and 1 foot wide. The tow truck and my bus were never seen again, for now at least. Ernest tried to track down the bus, but its tracker was disabled somehow. The news station that tried to film the massacre was ordered by the federal government to delete the limited footage they had captured, and to never speak of this until further notice. The rest of us that witnessed the event were essentially given NDAs by the government. The family members of the dead officers were given large settlements. These surviving officers had their medical bills paid for, and they were given a smaller settlement for their troubles. The seven students that didn't make it to their stop were taken care of by Ernest, his wife, and his three middle-aged children until they could be returned home. Ernest told me that I wasn't actually being paid $20 an hour. The ad was only listed that way to not attract unwanted attention. I was actually being paid $200 an hour, and he gave me a $1,000 bonus for my troubles today. The guard's wage was also multiplied by 10 and he also got a $1,000 bonus. I told Ernest what actually happened, and we now have a 14th rule for the bus drivers. Rule 14. Do not steal from the mansion owners, because they will find you, and they will do whatever it takes to get their stuff back. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories. And I want to give a big thanks to today's sponsors, NordVPN. Head to NordVPN.com slash MrCreeps for 66% off their two-year plan plus one month for free. And HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CreepsCast12 and use code CreepsCast12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Please support today's sponsors if you can, as they help keep this content free for all listeners. And as always, stay creepy.